Kia ora everyone, welcome back to the Side Hit Podcast, I'm your host Fat Tony, and today with us we have Ed Lee, welcome Ed. How you going Tony, you good? Yeah bro, been pretty good, been a good day? Uh, yeah, DIY day, fairly disastrous, nearly ripped the ceiling out, but <laughs> <laughs> not as productive as I would have liked, but, oh, yeah. but really good fun. Been, I've had a really busy Northern Hemisphere winter, and I've been home for 10 days now. So um, just getting the house sorted out, it's really nice just having a base again. Right, because I, uh, I heard your voice on a few snowboard competitions this this summer being, or summer for us anyway. Um, how was all that? It was pretty epic winter. Um, last job I did is probably the highlight of my snowboard career. Uh, I did got asked to do the commentary for natural selection alaska oh, red. and yeah it was i've done i don't know how many olympics seven olympics now a couple of paralympic games and that was the most nervous i've ever been about a job so what was it that was so nerve-wracking it's the audience for natural selection is snowboarding it's everyone you respect and everyone you care about so when you do the Olympics, 99.9% of people have got no concept of what you're talking about. And so, that, that doesn't mean you can get it wrong, mm. but I relax with that. Like, I'm in control and I'm, there's a lot of really, really strong opinions watching natural selection. I know mm. how I feel watching it. Yeah. And the desire to get that right and call it right was so huge. Essentially with Olympics, you're kind of a translator to, from action sports to a mainstream audience. But with this one, people actually know this shit. Yeah, and so your, the risk your, of, the your risk credibility of, as a commentator is on the line. Right, so the risk of being called out can be pretty gnarly. Yeah. Really. yeah. <laughs> and so I'm assuming you were commentating with that one remotely. Yeah. So, how, so how's that when it's, it's like a live... Can we, can we go through that? Because I don't get that. Yeah, so obviously with Baldface and um, Alaska... They don't have... If you're going to do a live event, there's two ways you can do it. You can either have a truck, which costs about $150,000 a day, sitting at the bottom of the event site, and then all of the camera feeds get fed into the truck. You make the show in the truck live, and then you shoot that out to the world. The other option is that you have some kind of satellite link-up from a base, and all the cameras shoot their feeds up into the universe and then back down to a studio... And then you make it live. But natural selection don't have that yet. So they shoot it all. And then they send that. They take all of that footage. Spend two weeks cutting it up. And then you lay the commentary over a cut. So, in a studio back in Los Angeles. Right. So you were essentially in a studio watching that footage commentating it. I was in a sound studio in Costa Mesa, South LA. Fucking hell. They did a good job to make it sound live then. <laughs> it's. Shit. I was joke that it's my superpower mustering uh, enthusiasm on cue but mm. honestly you you've seen it. it there was it was so easy mm. like the only nerve-wracking thing with that is that because it's you've got a lot of stuff to get through there's sponsor messages there's a preamble there's all the breaks so you've got to make sure that you're that you're not losing the energy if you're retaking those bits. And I went in feeling really strongly, and I said this to Mary Walsh, who I was doing the commentary with, look, once the action starts, let's just call it. We don't go back and recall action. Unless you make a catastrophic mistake, 
like we we bulldoze on through this because so, the danger of losing the energy and the spontaneity if you start redoing stuff so is too flow great. State, flow state commentating. Yeah, close to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Something thereof. Yeah. It wasn't my best work because you're in a completely alien situation. I'd never commentated with Mary before and I was nervous about it. But mm. at the same time, I was I was proud of what I did. Mm. It wasn't terrible. So I, don't, um, I didn't know much about Mary. Like, what's her background in snowboarding? She's got that classic encyclopedia gene. She was right. editor of Snowboarder and kind of oh, inherited right. uh, Pat Bridges' eye for detail. So she's got a really deep knowledge Oh, of a lot of those riders. But I found, if, if I was going to say one thing about the natural selection commentary up to this point, it's really, they've got such a depth of knowledge about the American riders, mm. but Zoe, Marion, Mikkel, um, so KB, some of the European riders get short shrift. into like They don't grow up with them. They don't have the same contact with them. Yeah. So that was something I wanted to address as well. Right, and so that, that's sort of, that's kind of cool, bringing in outside perspective in to help address that. Yeah. Um, I mean, shit, I was blown away. Like, fuck, let's talk about that Alaska, what we've seen in Alaska, because <laughs> holy fuck. Like, I mean, I was stoked to see um, two greats, as far as I'm concerned, like Torstein and Travis battling it out. Like, Ma- Mary called it. She know? said they were shouting at each other over the fence in that quarterfinal, semifinals day. Yeah. And just one-upping each other. Mm. That That is hands down. I think... If you're super into street snowboarding, maybe it's not the best snowboarding you've ever seen. But if if you're into snowboarding, like mountain, big mountain snowboarding, free riding, even freestyle, mm. that is hands down the best snowboarding that anyone has ever seen, film or contest, as far yeah. as I'm concerned. I mean, that Travis Rice run where it's the front one, switch, switch right on the spine to that cab five. I was like, holy fuck, we're in for a show here. And like, Travis is, he uses what he calls edge crusher there. Like the front one, he actually does like a front 165 degree. So he lands ever so slightly heel edge heavy. So already his trajectory is pushing him up on top of that spine. And mm. I think two or three turns in, he actually does a switch ollie off his heels to his toes over the spine a lot of us, a lot of people can't ride a spine forwards like that. Yeah. He does it switch, and then it's, I reckon, a board and a half's width on the takeoff, on his heels, corking mm. into a cab five. It's yeah. it's incredible. I sort of thought he might get a bit of shit for winning his own event, but then you see those runs, and there's no question. No. Like, no, no at all. No. I, no. I had a really interesting discussion. Jay Smith and I were shooting the shit when I got back, and he was saying, I mean, there's so much to love about Ben Ferguson's riding. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. it's beautiful. Stylistically, it's it's perfect. And I, I love that. I, mm. I, and, I, and kind of wild at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, I fucking and love that I shit. definitely, like, I'm, I'm looking to that. Like, I want to ride like Ben Ferg, but the technicality linking those tricks the way the power that travis mm. has got the way he reads that terrain that backside 360 you did first run yeah that step down yeah gap no one else had it did they 
it, loads of people hit it once oh, right. he'd got it but loads of people undershot it wagged it like Sage got it wrong landed hard Jared mm. Elston flailed through it and came up short That's Travis right. hit it first track massive stepped out over a big bit of terrain mm. on a huge kind of back three ever so uh, slightly shifted it and was, I think after seeing his runs at Jackson it's like you see the runs and the Travis Rice runs and last you're like ah oh, that's the Travis that we know well, you know, yeah, like, and it's. I, I was thinking Jackson, Travis is a big guy and he rides so powerfully. Jackson almost looks too small for him, he mm. looks like he's forcing it. Mm. The moment you get him up into that Alaskan terrain when it's huge, then it's like he's got the scale and the size of a mountain to yeah. do his riding justice. And he didn't grab much, like he's 39 now. Is yeah. I think over 40, you don't have to grab anymore. <laughs> Those are the rules. That's a great rule, isn't it? And he didn't grab that much, but still the riding looks beautiful. Mm. It was rare to see um, like the older riders take it out, like Hunter Beeman on on the girls and Travis on the guys, like the 39, and cleaned it up. And it's like, that's kind of cool to see its uh, and experience can still win. Yeah, and I, I actually did a lot of my research, I focused on that because Jared Elston, having won... Uh, what did he do? He did second, I think, in uh, Jackson and third or fourth in Baldface. Mm. But he was 22. He was yeah. three, th- 23 by the time they got to Alaska. Four years younger than Ben Ferguson uh, and five years younger than Mark McMorris. But Travis and Torstein, Travis 39, Torstein 35, yeah. age and experience in that terrain paid dividends. You, There's no shortcut in Alaska. Yeah, and I mean... I mean, that's Alaska in general, isn't it? The more experience you have, the better yep. you're going to get out of it. And you how- talk to anyone who's... Or you look at anyone who's ridden up there, and I've been up with a few pros, and they will tell you that they didn't start getting shots, usable video parts, until usually third trip. Maybe they might get second, but you don't start cranking until your third or fourth winter up there. Yeah. And you, that's a personal investment for the riders. They have to go up and invest in it, and then they can start. And that's quite a big investment from sponsors and shit too, right? To, to, to willingly throw cash at a rider knowing that it's going to be two years till you see a part. Yeah, and I don't think like, there's change from tw- anywhere between 20 and 40 US. Fucking hell. To go and do a proper Alaska, like, five, six-week season. Yeah, Jesus. <laughs> but, and while we're on the subject of that, how rad was it to see Torstein back in competition again I'm not gonna I've got to be honest I when I saw his name on the list in Jackson I wasn't sure how well he was gonna do I saw him as a single jump maybe two jump rider Mm. I didn't think I hadn't seen much of him linking lines together Mm. like you see Travis or Dustin Craven's parts in Oh Boy and Oh Man um you knew McMorris could do it, but I, I really wasn't sure about Torstein. And I, I ate a big slice of humble pie mm. in Jackson. I thought he really surprised me. And yeah, Jackson's going to work. I was sort of like, okay, how's it going to go in bald face? And I I got Ferguson Travis as my lineup for mm. Alaska and Mikkel, obviously. But for him to come out and ride like that was that was something very was special. I so stoked that Marion Hurty got to Alaska. Because like with her free ride world tour backgrounds, like yes, that's what that's her shit, right? Like, yeah, and I um, I also think that she a lot of people don't know it. She started out 
slopes are riding. Mm. Couldn't get to Sochi. But she'd done Shamroos, where she comes from, is Border Cross Hub. So she's got... That's what's... Her edge control from Border Cross Racing mm. is what's lent itself to Big Mountain. Mm. And, that, I mean, that's a whole other conversation. But I actually think the snowboarding Big Mountain rider is almost extinct. Yeah. I think the last of that breed was Xavier Delarue and Ralph Backstrom. Kind yeah. of guys who'd grown up racing and had that edge control. Like, but Marion's got it. She's she's Jeremy, an anomaly these yeah, days. Jeremy Jones and those dudes, yeah. Exactly. Like, yeah, there's not really... Tom Burke. Like, yeah. those guys all rode hard pack on race boards, learned how to make bad snow look good, and how to survive on extreme it's terrain. almost like the Giggy Rough Travis Rice generation started throwing tricks in the middle of those lines and then off to the races we went. Yep. And and, and Zav, you speak to Zav. Zav will tell you that a lot of riders today can't make a proper turn. They can throw up a big cloud of snow, mm. but they can't actually rail a turn properly. Mm. He's pretty disparaging about that. But th- that's taking away from it with digressing. Marion's, Marion's runs, mixing that big mountain with the freestyle. Mm. It was really lovely to I see. Was... And the women's riding... Has gone through the roof. I liked for me. her. Um, her wee sniper ollie at the start was well, not we, <laughs> but her sniper ollie at the start was fucking awesome. Yeah, Marian. and um, I was so bummed that Kevin Backstrom and Arthur Longo didn't make it through because they're like my two favourite contemporaries. Well, but, you know, both of them. And this is something that Chris Rasman, I like talking to uh, Sandy McDonald and Liam Griffin about the judging and the formats. They were saying that you've got a lot of riders there who've either haven't pulled on a bib for a long time or have never pulled on a bib. Mm. Chris Rasman, first comp in Jackson, it's the first time he'd had a bib on. Mm. So he's he just has got no concept of how he's going to be judged. Whereas mm. McMorris, total strategist when it comes to comps, had worked out, I'm not going to get penalised for doing the same run, so I'll just do this line, work it out, and just build my tricks through the comp, mm. which is why McMorris won that first one. But it takes time to work that out, and it's been a long time since Arthur's competed and a really long time for Kevin. Mm. I think his he missed out on Sochi, so 2013, nearly yeah. nine years. And you've, you can't go out there and just ride what looks good to you. You've got to... Even though it's a backcountry freestyle comp and it's about creativity, you've still got to think about what the judges want. Yeah, yeah. And nice. I think that's what we saw in Alaska mm. with Travis, Torstein, Marion and Hannah. They'd all worked out that Hannah knew from 2021 to 22 that she'd done a macking big mountain line in 21, mm. but no freestyle. And the judges were clear, this is not a big mountain contest. This is We may be in Alaska, but it's a backcountry freestyle contest. Mm. And um, speaking of natural selection, we can't have a New Zealand snowboarding podcast without talking about Zoe on there. Her run's pretty fucking sick. Like everyone's favourite rider yeah. right now. Yeah. She's, and that's it. Like the line that she laid down in the women's semis was, would have won any free ride world tour competition. Yeah, Hands we, down. we shifty at the start. Not we. Sorry, Zoe. <laughs> <laughs> Bigger than I'll ever do. Shifty at the start. <laughs> Is, yeah, well, just having the confidence to break trail on that big diamond cliff That's as well. Right, she did, hey. She cut out oh. onto that with... And there wasn't any hesitation there. She knew exactly where she was. She knew what she wanted to do. And there were a couple of little features in that landing that she mm. had to snipe. That, that to me, the fact that 
she'd won Baldface with Super Freestyle Run, mm. but then the fact that she can come out and just send a really chunky big mountain line, there's there's not that's, much she can't do. That's pretty good, eh? Like, yeah, it's it's pretty easy for people to write the write her previous performance. Ah, oh, just a lucky park rat, but you see that runs like no, she knows how to ride a fucking mountain. Like, yep. that's just not even up for debate. Like, yeah, yeah. I've got yeah. I've got a theory about it though, because I I made sure before I started that commentary gig I made sure that I got uh, board stats off everyone I knew what everyone was riding, mm-hmm. and the four Burton riders Zoe, McMorris, um, Ben Ferguson and Mickle mm. three of them Mark Zoe and Ben were riding the hometown hero like a right. super tapered directional board. Mm. Mickle was riding the custom one seventy. Yeah. So, and what was fascinating, we we saw it in Alaska that switch, like riding switch and linking tricks together, mm. switch was just maxing out the judges' scores in terms of creativity and risk. But like riding switch for the second riding switch wouldn't work so well. Uh, Sparky did it. Morris did it yeah. between a little. I think he flicked around back one and then did some switch turns and did a little cab one out. Mm. And I think it did a bit, but it was almost lip service. But, but it's way harder on those hometown heroes. Yeah. When you're on a tapered board with that much rocker on the nose, yeah. you're working hard to keep that thing switch. Yeah. I'm fascinated I, to I see. Mean, switch, switch ragdoll would fucking suck on there, eh? <laughs> yeah. You're going to dive so hard and so <laughs> fast. <laughs> well, while we're on the subject of this, can you enlighten me on um, Blake Paul? Because I can't believe he got the score he got at Bookface. So I had to try and get into a place where I was really confident calling judges' decisions. Mm. I had an hour and a half chat with Sandy McDonald, amazing judge. He's done a lot of fist stuff. He's done a lot of Olympic stuff. He's done a lot of TTR stuff. Uh, and now he's, alongside Liam Griffin, written kind of the manual, essentially, with Connor Manning and Chad Otterstrom. And I did an hour with him. And... The key thing you've got to think with the judges, like a lot of people were shocked in bald face. Blake Paul comes ninth, I think it was, with a 50-pointer. Yeah. And he'd laid down a clean run so top to bottom. Me, look perfect. It's beautiful. And it's the yeah. kind... I think that the problem comes because it's the kind of snowboarding that we can all relate to. It's, yeah. the, kind, it's the way we want to snowboard. Yeah. And it's, it's almost tangible. But and, and that was the first thing I asked Sandy. And he said... He, he was going to have a chat with Blake about it. And he said, people get hung up on the score. And it was a low score. But he said, it's not about the score. It's about the rank. As lo- and he said, the rank was right. And the point he made was that Blake rode down through all threes. It was all lovely threes through the run. And they're super smooth and they're super stylish. But he's putting in so many unnecessary turns. He said he had more turns forward than Dustin Craven had switch. Right. Craven rode faster and more aggressively switched through the powder than Blake did forwards. Right. And that was that was what the metric that they started judging that run by. The, and the thing that they don't want to see ever is a layup run. They want to see riders pushing at 95, 99% the whole time. And that's what we saw in Alaska. So if you see a run like Blake's, they're going to punish it. Because in their mind, they know what Blake can do, and it's a layup run. He's right. not pushing hard. Technically, it's not there. And yeah, you're you're maxing out the overall style quota, mm. but the risk is not there. The creativity is not there. Yeah. 
So it's, it's, and the difficulty is not there. Three of the five categories yeah, right. are super low. Right. I mean, that face looked amazing that they were on too. Scary Cherry. Yeah. Although then you, then the scene, the drone footage of how steep it was, like, oh, fucking hell. Before like, I did the natural selection voiceover, I went and visited Nick Hamilton, who, when I was editor of White Lines, was the, the photo editor of White Lines. And we essentially lived slept snowboarded breathed together for four years and he now he he left white lines and became senior photo editor at Transworld for 16 years and he went to both supernatural and ultra natural so he had photos and we went and watched a bit of bald face and he he had his photos so well catalogued he pulled out shots of lucas dabari on the same features that we saw sage kotzenberg airing that we saw dustin craven airing dabari cleared nearly that uh, conditions were way better but Dabari cleared nearly that whole face he's got a sequence and we had to lay it out to try and work out how big it was I reckon he cleared over 35 meters of terrain on that and when you see a sequence like that laid out with the drone shots flatten all of those faces in natural selection when this supernatural sequence that we saw was just gigantic and the gradient of that face is, mm. like you said, it's there, terrifying. There's moments where you're like, oh, I could totally ride down there. And then, <laughs> and then you actually see the um, angle that shows it properly. Like, oh, maybe I wouldn't, hey? <laughs> and, and the state yeah. of the snow. Yeah. They called it sporty, but it was just... It, yeah. like we re- And Tom Burt said this to me. There's the first massive name drop for you. Mm. Um, that The mark of a good rider is being able to make shitty snow look good. Yeah. And a, a lot of those riders did that. And you mentioned Kevin Backstrom. For me, KB made Jackson look real. Made, oh he flattered God. those conditions like, massively. Um, that rewind front three shifty, fucking... Oh. No and, business. It was so beautiful. And, and he went probably the biggest you could physically go on that hip yeah. as well. Yeah. Like, I was really hoping. I was like, oh, I'd love to see that dude in Alaska. It'd be amazing. You know, like, <laughs> I just really think his style's fucking awesome. It's um, pop, isn't it? It's it's that. Oh. And I talked about this a little bit. A natural selection. It's that thing you see, and you can see it in Travis and Torstein. There's power and confidence there, mm. but with Elston and Ben Ferg and McMorris, they're still young enough. There's like this super light-footed, spry pop off mm. everything they've got that energy and ferguson's riding especially mm. you know he's exploding into everything yeah i, I love that yeah that's so <laughs> um we've probably mentioned that but like was there any personal highlights with um voicing over the natural selection <sighs> just doing it like getting i was i'm well, I've, I've been a part of snowboarding i started when i was 14 so coming up on 32 years and like i said that's the most impressive snowboarding i've ever Mm. seen it's the biggest leap in terms of the parameters of what's possible i've seen at one event and i've been to a few i've seen Mm. because i was thinking about that with talking about that's the best snowboarding we've seen in alaska and then i was mentally going back through all the video parts going is that but then you look at these video parts, it's like one or two tricks a line. Yep. Whereas how many tricks did Travis do on? Seven. <laughs> Seven big ones if you count the butters, eight. Fucking hell. Yeah, like Eric Jackson, like yeah. th- maybe three big hits. Yeah. But Torstein and Travis, seven, eight 
hits in a run. Yeah. Consistent. It, it's just massive. And uh, being a part of that, I was I feel immensely privileged. But what the Natural Selection crew are doing... I have so much respect for it this time in snowboarding. We need it so desperately. We need an alternative competition format to the Olympics at the moment, desperately. Yeah. And and I'm and, in, I'm very very proud to to do anything I can to try and help that. And is that um, and is that do you suppose um, natural selection provides something that's more relatable than a um, quad? God knows what number they're spinning up to these days. Yeah, I think you more know, people. It's and you understand. People understand what's going on at natural selection. Mm. It's two people going head to head, higher score goes through. Yeah, and you can. Most people can call all of those tricks. Mm. Like I really have to work hard for the Olympics. Mm. Big air now is really, really hard. Yeah, like twenty one sixties we're at, oh, and it's God. That's I see. I can't even be bothered adding that up. Lark's open, like, you kind of look at, you're working really hard because people are corking out. You're like, okay, is it a 6.30? Is it an 8.10? Like you, it's really difficult calling those corks uh, out of rails now. So I seen there was a, some kid just did a 21.60, and I was like, you know what, I give up. I can't even be bothered figuring out how many 180s it is. And to be honest, I don't care. <laughs> like, I mean, good for them, but... Oh my god! It's we need big air, especially mm. slope. I really like the way. Are we getting into this now? Because <laughs> I've got loads, so much to talk about on this. Mm. But if you look at slope, 2016 Yuki Kodono at the U.S. Open did backside 16:20 to switch backside 16:20, mm. and everyone who was running comps at that time was like, "Where's this going to go?" Mm. So. Instead of letting that that arms race of big spins take over, the courses got changed. And for five years, trick difficulty stepped down and creativity on the course and use of course stepped up. Mm. It took until 2021 with Nicholas Matson at the Larks Open to see that 16, backside 16 to swag 16 combo again. Right. And I really... Like, what we did in that time was get really creative riders start bringing transition back into slope style yeah. courses making the rails way more creative and the way you string them together yes, there was one feature that seemed to show up in the courses i couldn't describe it but jamie anderson would always do a rodeo offer and i was so hyped because like yes I, that's the trick of the 2000s you know well you'd see those cannon them. rails or you'd see mm. the kind of the lily pads or the tractor seats the bird bars yeah you'd, you'd get different types of riding and i remember in 2017 i think in larks watching a quarter pipe put at the bottom of the course mm. and some really big names being shown up because they could only ride rails and kickers they yeah. didn't have the transition skills yeah and it they, they just they didn't back down the coaches didn't want to see it the riders some of the riders didn't want to see it but they said this is snowboarding mm. and we've got to have this and i think that's what's got to happen in big air now Mm. Otherwise, it's, it's, there's going to be no differentiation. It's crazy that the um, pros couldn't ride a transition, but then you think about it now, like how many places have half pipes? Fuck all. Yeah. As soon as they went over two, a two million pipes. US to yeah. keep a half pipe running for yeah. a year, a super pipe. Like, we talk about this in so many episodes of this. Like, Kadrani used to have four half pipes, Coronet had two, 
TC had one for a couple of years. Remarks had one. Mount Hutt. Now Skadrona just has a super pipe and then a mini pipe every now and then. And, and it's all the, like Blue Montgomery talks about in his bomb hole and I think he nailed it. It's like, well, maybe that's part of the reason that those pros were struggling with transitioners. There wasn't a 10-foot pipe to grow up riding on. It's just these gigantic 22-foot monolithic beasts. And they, I don't know if they're cut properly. They're, they're safer to ride. Bigger mm. transition, safer to ride. But good fact for you, there are less super pipes in the world than there are bobsleigh tracks now. So right. your likelihood of being growing up close to a really good solid super pipe is pretty low. Mm. So you're coming into that, you've got that feeder system where previously most people would come into contact. Most people on a mountain would at some point come into contact with a the pipe. Mm. These days that number's really, really low. Mm. So you've um, got to find, actually finding a pipe and then committing to it. And it is the true, level's so it? high, it is a lonely road. To get to the elite yeah. level of pipe riding these days. And even like, say for a regular recreational rider, like if you're riding a 15 foot pipe and you bust a head high air out, it feels like something, right? You're like, yeah, you bust a head high air out of a 22 foot pipe, it's, might as well be six inches, right? It, it, doesn't, it doesn't really... I, I, I was riding larks a lot this winter gone. Like, just getting out the coping of that thing feels like you're at the top of the Empire yeah. State Building. It's mass. Like, there's so much vert on it, yeah. and that transition's so huge. It's terrifying. another 20 foot above that. I mean, fuck, if you get that wrong, that's going to fucking suck. I've seen you some... Know? Some of the worst slams I've seen in snowboarding in recent years have been... Like, David Herblutzel got bitten off twice, like, deck-chaired, kidneys first over the coping. Like his whole back was purple, and he did that two years in a row like unbelievably horrific slam to take but i mean of the riders that are there i i wrote an article for white lines just ahead of the beijing olympics saying that i don't think there'll be another pipe final Potentially, it'll be technically as good, but we had so many narratives come together with Scotty James, Ayumu, um, Sean White's last section, mm. uh, Yuto Totsuka. Um, there, there were so many good stories woven into that, and I wonder if pipe riding will ever be able to deliver that again. But then I watched Valentino Gazelli stepping up, and you're mm. like, okay, well, maybe. Really, it was can. a um, a bit of a. I mean, we'll talk about the Olympics a bit later on, but um, it really did feel like we were watching a changing of the guard, like Jamie Anderson handing the torch to like Zoe and that crew, and Sean White handing the torch to you know, Scotty James and that crew. Sean, and, Sean did things in 2018 he had no business doing. Mm. Like, tricks he hadn't landed, and have uh, really... Like, he hadn't linked those two 14s together. Mm. To be able to do that under that much pressure in that moment, you, exactly as you say, it doesn't matter what you think about him personally, that was truly phenomenal. Like, like that, I mean, and even though he didn't place on the podium, he, you can say he ended at the top of his game. It was it was my great sadness from Beijing, though, that Jay, we didn't see Jamie ride at her best. Yeah. Like, that was really disappointing. I She's such an incredible rider mm. and i think it was her last her third and final run down she just she started it in the first half of that run was beautiful 
Mm. It looked, it was classic. She's so effort. Her riding looks so effortless when she's on point. Mm. You just, you're like, oh my God, look at her. Look, it's a thing of beauty. Yeah. And then the wheels came off it and you're like, no, because I always think Zoe's at her best when she's being pushed. Yeah. Zoe eats pressure for breakfast and like you knew the moment Jamie steps up then you know it'll push Zoe as well it was fucking crazy watching Zoe win and be like wow her life's just changed forever she's gone from being like for New Zealand anyway she's gone from being oh that kid that's good on the snowboard to the first person to bring well one of the few people to bring home a gold winter Olympics medal and the first one for snowboarding gold anyway yeah and that's huge that's well just like watching a gun putting like fuck her life's just changed you know like, well i, um, I don't it has for yeah. sure but there's this cruel twist with winter sport for new zealand that it happens in the height of summer yeah the winter games and so for us as snowboarders it means the world mm. especially when you see it coming from someone who rides who's knowledge and dedication to the sport like her snowboard history is so strong her understanding of where it's come from and where she's going also like her humble like she is a good sportswoman and these are world-class riders Mm. who would have been on six-figure deals if they were american Mm. and they'd grown up in colorado or tahoe or vermont if jj raywood was american he'd have a signature everything yeah you know And and that's that's it's the curse and the gift of New mm. Zealand snowboarding. Yeah. That these people, like, you create riders who are world class and yet they're hidden gems on an international stage. Yeah. And they, they do it because they love it because there just isn't any funding there. Mm. Like, the industry isn't big enough. And yeah, people, I think people get travel budgets, they get lift passes, they get free heli days. And some of the, the riders who go through that competition system now go through snow sports can make some money out of it mm. but it's there's there's a lot more riders than there is budget yeah yeah always has been down here and that's it's one of my favorite things and it's one of the things that breaks my heart as well yeah i, I think our isolation is a gift and a curse at the same time but yeah you know, that's life gives and takes and but um, coming back to zoe it's she maybe won't get the recognition she deserves from the New Zealand mainstream press, there'll be a huge drive ahead of 2026 in Milan, Mm. but the industry knows who she is. She's got gold medal, silver medal, bronze medal, two natural selection victories. Mm. No, she is the best in the world, hands down. That's it, no debate. When she was on here, and uh, Will had a question about what was your proudest moment, was it the bronze and the... Korean Olympics or the natural selection she's like natural selection victory so like that's obviously you know she she knows where but that's that's the point we've just made about natural selection for me as well it's Mm. like I've done seven Olympics but the thing I'm most nervous about the thing I care most about the response to is natural selection because deep down we're all snowboarders and that's what matters to you Mm. it's the that format the olympics and where they're going an amazing conversation with this swiss photographer called lotza about 2017 and he i was lamenting that snowboarding was becoming figureboarding 
and that yeah. we were it was going to be snownastics with these rehearsed runs, no spontaneity. Uh, and he said, yes, but this has happened before. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, what was the coolest thing on the mountain in 1970? And I was like, hot dog skiing? And he's like, and what did hot dog skiing become? I was like, freestyle skiing. And we all know what freestyle skiing looks like now. Yeah, It's aerials. It's gymnasts who, like, if you go to the Olympics and watch aerials, the skiers put flags in the snow, so they like the coach puts a flag in, so they know where they need to go from, and they literally stand sideways on the snow next to this flag, then they jump, turn around, flat base it into the jump, do their trick. When they land, they they can't ski well enough to stop. Like heaps of them, they'll land, but then they smash into the barriers because they can't actually ski. Oh. And that's we're we're in transition, moving towards that now with so, the with the tricks that are on the table. The, I got it, while we were on the subject of this Olympics being, the I I was blown away with the whole presence of the Japanese crew, like not just an individual rider, but the whole presence. You're like man, the and they all knew how to ride a fucking snowboard. I mean, my favourite dude was that dude that jibbed the banner at the bottom. I was like, he should get a medal for fucking that, you know. And uh, especially when um, the front the front 50, 188 on the bar- banner at the bottom. It's like, that's the dude right there. And I was, it, it renewed my faith in competitive snowboarding to know that there is a contingent of riders out there like that that get it. Yeah, there's uh, Ryoma Kimata is one of my favourites. And I saw him down here in 2019. He was wearing like diarrhea-coloured pants and jacket. He stood out really clearly. Um, But he was riding. He had all the tech, but he had the style of like an early Burton Gooch when he was on the Evil Twin. Yeah. And he just had this effortless flow to him. And it made me stand up, especially because I find it very difficult with Japanese pipe riding and the way they develop that. Mm. If you look at... You can literally tell where the Japanese pipe riders are in their development because they learn five five seven seven or straight air five five seven seven and then then once they've got the sevens down they'll go seven seven nine nine mm. and then it's and they but they're just literally building it up in pairs and it's very very rote learning whereas if you look at the slope riders, exactly as you said, there's more creativity coming in there and they're yeah. starting to really fire into that. And I think that comes back to the point we made earlier about courses. You've got to, em- you've got to embrace your individual strengths. There mm. isn't a recipe that you can follow to get good anymore. Like that dude, so I don't know the Japanese dude's name, but he like that bowl corner. I don't even think it was built as a bowl corner, but he yeah, fucking... Tiger Hasegawa. And it's not and, Takaru Otsuka. Who is but, that? Oh, it's just so stoked. And I mean, he probably knew that that run wasn't going to win him a medal, but he fucking did it. And yeah. and that was, we might as well stay on the Olympics now that we're fucking, <laughs> and then we'll get to the past <laughs> after. Um, yeah, and, we're, we're, I, I should say here, Tony had got himself a massive set of notes and we've detonated all of them just talking about... <laughs> <laughs> we've, not, we've literally scribbled through about 20 sets of subjects. Uh, but poor <laughs> bastards are in for a long lesson. Um, um, but, like, the Japanese crew, like, that fucking... That giant method. Kaishu. Yeah. Fuck me. Like, again, like... The Japanese the, won hey, the snowboarding, didn't for they? For the now? culture, right? Those dudes... For the culture, man. 
Surely. Yeah, 100%. But then you, you've got to weigh that up. You've got two brothers. Kaishu's out there doing it for the culture. Mm. Like, the biggest method you've ever seen. Like, imagine, I suppose we always knew it was coming at one point, but it's essentially Ingmar or Heike someone, or Terrier's heirs. Someone fucking did, in a, a, pipe did a picture on Instagram with that method and Ingmar's method. You're like... Fucking Gamal's going big for 96. <laughs> Unreal, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But to be fair, there was a, Ingemar was landing on a bank. Yeah. He wasn't coming back into a 22-foot transition. And Kaishu did... The, if you watch the replay on Kaishu's one, he comes in perfectly. Mm. He meets that transition. Kaishu, inch perfect. if you have a picture of that method, it should be framed and in your house on the wall somewhere. Because yeah. that was amazing. Or just screenshot and, it and leave it as your desktop and how's that battle with Scotty and Ayumu like that was fucking gnarly that was that was pretty controversial yeah. in the end I mean Todd Rich- I definitely questioned it at the time Todd Richards went full um uh I, I wrote an article for Slush and said that he went Karen level 8 on it and, <laughs> but and you can I'll give you a link for that time so if anyone's really interested they can go and look at it but it was under the microscope because of what had happened in Slopestyle with Max Paro but mm. I actually I feel very very strongly that the TV coverage of the games was dog shit mm. and the pipe especially you, they were using the judges' cam, that lovely long lens at the bottom mm. of the pipe, to get Ayumu's triple, so it looked massive. Mm. And then, because Scotty was starting on the other side of the pipe with the jib arm, they were looking down on that switchback twelve. And in pipe, it's law, the law of diminishing returns. Mm. When only one person has a trick, then it scores big. Once everyone's got it, it the score reduces and it becomes yeah. more normal. Like that switchback twelve has been in the public domain for five, maybe six seasons now, and Scotty is still the only person doing it. And to me, that puts it, even though it's only just been unveiled, it puts it on a par with the triple mm. because Scotty's going in and going as big as Iumo's switchback side off his heel switch. Four of Iumo's five hits. Mm. A toes off his toes down the pipe, and he grabs between his feet. Yeah. Like, it, yes, it's unbelievably technical, but there's no variety in there. Yeah. Scotty's mixing it up. He spins all four ways, and mm. he's reaching out. He's grabbing tail. He's grabbing melon in that cab fourteen, which is reaching out of the spin. Yeah, there's. Yeah, I could so get really detailed on that, but. And but that's how you that's how so you explain that I stuff. I didn't watch snowboard halfpipe in New Zealand here because the commentator they had was. <laughs> fucking terrible well, it, what, it was it was some it sounded like he should have been fucking commentating golf or something like it was a, uh, it was an abortion for the years well that, yeah. and that's the thing that's what you get with the olympics they where do we start so mm. the olympics do the biggest tv rights deals in the world mm. i think for vancouver london sochi for a three-game cycle, they paid two point. NBC paid two point two billion. That's one one oh, channel, yeah. and that's the biggest deal. Yeah. But then you've got Chinese state television, you've got BBC. There's a lot of money swilling around there. Yeah. Then they do the biggest sponsorship deals in history: Coca-Cola, Visa, McDonald's. Like these are the biggest global brands. And then you have a venue, city or country that pays for all the infrastructure costs. 
And the IOC, when they operate in a country, demand tax-free status. That's one of the first caveats of hosting the games. You, they get tax-free status. So they've got these huge TV rights deals, huge sponsorship deals. The venue city pay for all the infrastructure and they're operating tax-free. They're one outlay. They're one big cost. Obviously, they've got administration and all those other things, but you're not going through probably 10 billion an Olympic mm. cycle for that. Is the OBS, the Olympic Broadcasting Service. And that means that they film, they have to film all the events and for countries that don't send their own commentators, so I go for the BBC and do the UK commentary, but for countries like New Zealand or Australia who don't send a commentator for every sport, you get the OBS commentator. Yeah. And that could be... I've, I've seen uh, downhill skiers doing skateboarding. That's what you got if you listen to Tokyo down here yeah. in NZ. I've seen uh, motorsport commentators did snowboarding in Sochi. They do not care. When you turn up to that OBS commentator's briefing, they don't care who you are or what expertise you've got. They only care that you're not going to swear and you're not going to say anything wrong. Mm. Your level of understanding of the sport is the last thing they care about. It was so hard to, like... I had friends like, oh, no, you'll find it so funny. It's like, I care too much to find it funny. Like, I just can't. Well, the fact that, like there's so much if you're good at comment like commentary is an art if you're mm. good at it you can you can as you say you can wreck someone's experience or you can elevate it to the highest highs mm. on the on the times when i've got it right or i'm in there with someone who you're just riffing with and you're both flying it's it's the most amazing experience and it mm. it really affects people yeah totally but yeah the the olympics just don't there's so many things wrong with it. Like, but then at the same time, as we all know, the sport itself has the power to inspire people. Mm. And I, whatever else you say about it, it's what matters to people. And it's like in snowboarding terms, we've jettisoned all of the really important comps. And now everything comes down for the park and pipe kids. Everything comes down to that one day every four years mm. to win your pipe, your slope or your big air medal that you've targeted. It's crazy because we used to have a lot more that used to matter. But we can't talk about this Olympics without talking about the knee grant. Oh. <laughs> I'm um, really sad about this. And this- what the fuck happens? Like, I mean, it's... like I, I, I get it. Like, he was trying to just get himself out of his spin to land on his feet. Yeah. But... Fucking hell. I mean, Jesus, like, let's just put that in context. The yeah. fact that he was able to do that on a cab 12. Yeah. In in the heart of a cab 12 go, I've missed this. I haven't, it's not coming round the way I want it to. If I get hold of my front knee, this is going to pull it back in, or my back knee, it's going to pull it back in. That's a pretty amazing air awareness right there. It's insane, isn't it? And yeah. I mean, Max's story in itself is wonderful. But, like, we talked about the way New Zealand snowboarding has influenced Zoe. And then I also, one of, some of my favourite moments were watching women's slope and women's big air and the camaraderie at the bottom of those runs. Mm. The, what, what it meant to the women. See, well, I was talking to my nana about that because she watched, both my nanas watched it, which was awesome. Like, one of my nanas, she's hardcore into motor racing and shit, like my family is. 
they fucking when Zoe's runs were on, she made my granddad pull over their camper and they watched remotely like and and motor racing was on. No, we're not watching the motor racing. We're watching Zoe. And the, and but my other nana, she's like, I don't get why they're all hugging each other, you know, at the bottom and all that. It's like that's because they know they've just witnessed something great happen within women's snowboarding. And you can, you're you know? competing against yourself. Yeah. That's the bottom line. But Compare that to what we saw in the men's. Max does this big knee grab. His score comes in. And di- inside, he knows. Mm. He's like, fucking hell, they didn't see it. And the judges were on the same feed that we were on as commentators. And I didn't see it until the third replay. Right. And you're like, oh, shit. Like, oh, what have they done? And mm. you're like, right, this is this is a travesty. Like... So I've got WhatsApp groups that are going straight to a couple of the judges. I'm like, what's happening? What are you doing with that score? I want to know if, 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 if it's a discussion. Because they can. The judges have the power to change those scores. They can readdress them. Before the result becomes official, they could have changed that. And yes, there's a massive blame game that, loads, that got chatted about. And there were loads of very... Very intelligent people who are in the know who've written articles about this. Matt Matthew Crapel put a lovely post up to me, and and you can like it was it was a miscarriage of justice. Like it, it all went wrong. There's no way that on my scorecard Max would have been lucky to get bronze. Mm. I think Su Yiming had gold, Sparky got silver. But what disappointed me the most, you compare if that had happened in the women's, I guarantee you. Zoe, Anna, Jamie, whoever it was, would have handed, they would have all swapped the medals over or changed places on the podium. Yeah. Matt, the fact that Max, if Max had done that after everything he's been through with his Hodgkin's lymphoma cancer, if he'd have done that, you'd have been like, Max Power is the fucking man. Yeah, like, people's champion. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He'd be immortalised forever. Yeah. Instead, now he's the guy who took a gold, kept his mouth shut for a dirty trick that he knew he'd done. And he's yeah. gone down in my estimations because of yeah. that. I don't think he cares. He just wanted a gold. Because it's hard for that um, Chinese guy, right? Because I had Richie Johnson on here before, and he was saying that China, they only care about gold. They don't care if you win a billion silvers. They just want the gold. And he was so close and then lost it due to that. That's got to, you know, that's... Yeah, it, it stings. Uh, yeah. It stings. But I mean, the South China Post covered. Uh, it was the only paper that I could understand, but they covered the knee grab in detail. Mm. Like mainstream press really latched onto that, yeah. and that's what the shame was. Like Max, Max didn't have to do it right there and there, there and then in the finish area. But when they got backstage, they could have had the chat, yeah. and then they could have sorted it out. I did, th- and for me, that's the difference between where. The soul of snowboarding's at in women's mm. slope and big air, and where it's at in men's slope and big air. Oh, it was so cool! Like Zoe landed her run, and she got mobbed by her peers. Like they just piled her, right? That's well, fucking sick. Like women's slope finals. Then think about a day later, men's slope finals. There were a lot of men trying to land that far down the transition who couldn't hold on to that. The Fuck way Zoe God. took that impact <laughs> so far down. Yeah. Well, you've got to land absolutely bolts if she'd yeah. been on either edge ever so slightly she would have collapsed mm. but the fact that she was completely bolts over that board yeah boom doesn't matter how hard that impact was she was going to stand up yeah oh it was amazing like 
Anyway, we've um, <laughs> enough about current events. <laughs> well, uh, we'll take it back a couple of years. Uh, Ed, where are you from and how did you get into snowboarding? Um, right. Whole family's from Essex. So estuary oh, you're an Essex boy? Yep. Oh, shit. Technically not by birth, but by heritage. The whole family comes from either side of Southend, Leon Sea and Thorpe Bay. But my, and they're all sailors. Like my granddad uh, was one of the first people to get a windsurfer uh, back in the early 70s, managed to get his hands on one. And they were they were always kind of out doing stuff. They're adventurous. And my folks met sailing, like dinghy racing. But then for some unknown reason, they decided to move to Gloucestershire, which really, like it's an old Roman city. In It's where Wales, if you don't know your English geography, Wales kind of meets the southwest where the Cornwall and Devon coast comes up and there's that little inlet where it meets Wales. Gloucester is the crossing point. And it's a small-minded, racist rural town. Right. And I, when I was 12, a guy called James Stentiford moved in two doors down from us and this fly-off appeared outside. No, I was younger than that. I was 10 or 11. And this fly-off appeared outside, and then James started skateboarding. I went out and started watching, and he did an ollie. And like anyone at that age who sees a skateboard lift off the ground without using any elastic... Just changes, eh? Yeah. It's just like, the fuck did you just do? Yeah. And that was it. My like Skateboarding was exploding. It was 1985, 86 maybe, and... Bristol was our nearest city. They'd had loads of concrete poured in the 70s. So we'd start training down there or we'd get lifts with bigger boys. And I got super into skateboarding, which in Gloucester just didn't really happen. Um, Bristol, like music scene down there was incredible. You'd got trip hop starting to blow up, massive attack, Portishead, um, uh, Tricky, like really good music scene. But in Gloucester, nothing was happening. And then, age 14, I saw High Five, this old... Is that Etnies? No, it was, no. A, it was a, like a little show that used to air oh, on right. Saturday and Sunday mornings on TV, and they showed snowboarding. And age 12, they built Europe's biggest dry ski slope, like a giant toothbrush on a hill in Gloucester, Robinswood Hill. And my dad, we'd been watching Ski Sunday, which was massive at the time. And my dad was like, right, we're going to learn to ski. So we'd go up and I, I learned to ski with Eddie, Ed, Eddie Edwards, Eddie the Eagle, because no he way. was from Cheltenham. <laughs> so we'd go up and because the heavier you are, the more friction you create on the toothbrush. So we'd be ripping faster than Eddie the Eagle down this dry slope. <laughs> and my mum was a teacher, so she hooked up. Um, some trips out to the snow. We got into skiing. And then when I was 14, I saw snowboarding on this show, High Five. Um, it was like my worlds smashed into each other. I was like, I can skateboard on snow. Mm. I was, it blew my mind. And I was like, this is what we're doing. And yeah, yeah from then on, that was what I was all about. Started, like there was an old British shop, bought some boards down, started riding, got a job at the ski slope, 
just like I learned so, how to because if people fall over on that shit they dislocate their thumbs yeah or they break they compound fracture their arms because they're giant it's like a giant hexagon with a toothbrush toothbrush bristles on the frame but if your arm or your fingers go into the hole and then you fall over them you basically mm. tear them out so with yeah dry slopes so <laughs> for us that are lucky enough to grow up on mountains it's quite surreal to see so I, I didn't know what one was for years and I was working with um, this British dude early on in my time at Cadrona I was helping him out on the list one day he's like oh no we grew up riding this stuff I was like what the slush he's like no this plastic I'm like holy fuck like really he's like yeah like, that's gnarly it was it was like, like you had to really want to do it like you'd lose I lost a lot of skin luckily I never dislocated anything but there were people there was a guy called Mark Hartley who'd ride Sheffield Dry Slope and fuck me we used to we used to discuss whether he was the hardest man alive or if he just used to hold it all in until he got into his car and then he'd just break down in tears when he got to the car he'd leave like with large chunks of his skin missing off his face black eyes giant swell bows like I saw him dislocate his elbow I saw him dislocate his knee do you have to, to just take your edges off to ride that sort of thing or <laughs> there's, there's so many insane stories and the British champs on dry slope like they, it was so punk Back in those days, it was insane. Like, you'd, you'd got people, there was one guy called John Green who'd worked out a pump that he had in his pocket filled with washing up liquid that then ran through two tubes down his front leg onto his binding and then the tubes would run up the front of his board and over the nose and then he'd pump washing up liquid <laughs> onto the base of his board as he was racing down Fucking to get hell. more speed. But this, the, It sounds really clever, but this is the same guy who got put... As they were driving up to Scotland one time, they said to him, um, John, have you got your passport? He's like, no. And they're like, well, you're not going to be able to get in. He's like, I want to go, I want to go. They're like, well, get in the board bag and we'll strap you to the roof. <laughs> and, then, and then we'll get you out once we've crossed the border. <laughs> they, oh. left, they left him up there for about 40 miles. Oh, my God. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Like, how is it... Like, I mean, I grew up riding mountains with snow on them. Like, fucking... How do you initiate a turn? Like, an actual turn on dry slope? Or are you just skidding them? Yeah, it's, it's power... You're power sliding. It's like right. power sliding a skateboard. So, I... And then when we finally got to snow, we couldn't take boards out with us. Right? My board had high backs. My brothers didn't. Um, and it was... But it was a revelation. And... Mm. About three years after that, maddest thing, about an hour and a half up the road, just north of Birmingham, they built an indoor snow dome at Tamworth. Right. And we started getting into that. And that, if you stuck a pin in the middle of Great Britain, it was in Tamworth. Yeah. Shitty little nothing town. But it's got this snow dome. And on Tuesday nights, we'd pull out the ramps and the rails and all of British snowboarding from all four corners of Britain would be in there. And really? the sessions would be, it'd be like a skate park session. And because you're not all spread out all over a mountain. You're either on the escalator or you're on the slope. So yeah. everyone knew what everyone was doing. And it was that kind of, yeah. I've got to do that. I've got to have that. Red. And so that's, once that opened, you like, oh, never mind the dry slope. Or were you still riding? Still rode a bit of dry slope. Because that would trash your board as far as 
the base would get all scratched out oh, yeah. and shit or yeah so it wasn't yeah that but good on snow or? it was just rock hoppers oh yeah. but we never got on snow yeah, so your right. ball was constantly on the dry slope. So you're yeah. just working out ways, like you'd time it. They'd have sprinkler systems to wet it all down and reduce friction. So you, summer days, every now and again it'd snow on the hill itself and you'd go up and try and ride that. But <laughs> it was, when I was, I would have been 15, James Stentiford, the guy who I told you about with the skateboard, mm. he'd, lived, he'd grown up in Germany and he left school and went to do a season. And we were like, what the fuck's a season? And James went out to the mountains. He went to Chamonix and he lived in the mountains and he snowboarded. And from the age of 15, that's what I was going to do. Right. So was that the moment? Was there a moment with snowboarding that clicked? You're like, this is me. This is my shit. Those nights at Tamworth. Yeah. Like seeing everyone and being a part of that was huge. For me, that was like, I love this. I want to. It was skateboarding, but... I'm not a natural skateboarder. I have to work really hard at it mm. because I'd grown up doing a fair bit of windsurfing and bike riding. The speed of snowboarding clicked, but standing sideways was what worked for me. And I, I was like, I've got this. And especially once I started getting on snow, I had good route finding and I started fre- naturally mm. was just drawn to free riding. Because your um, description of Tamworth reminded me of like uh, indoor areas in Dunedin in the 90s that would like, they were roller hockey arenas, and every Wednesday or Thursday night, they'd let us come in as skaters with our ramps and rails and all that shit. So a similar sort of vibe, like. And, but and and then the same thing, like all of Dunedin's crews would come with all skate, this one thing, see where everyone's at, and the energy you get. Oh man, with those, and I, yeah. I mean, it's one of the things I love most about Cardis. It's the same. There aren't many parks like Cardi's where you're either on the lift or you're in the park. Yeah. And see, I find that daunting because I'd much rather people not see me ride park because no one needs to ever see that. <laughs> <laughs> it keeps you honest. There's no bullshitting, is there? But it's, I, I think that's uh, like, there's a lot of reasons New Zealand's producing so many good snowboarders. But I th- actually think that's an underrated factor. Mm. That actually there's that there's that peer pressure of fucking everyone on this lift is watching me. I've got to throw down. Mm. Like, I can't lay up for this. And it's great when you're riding up too. You're like, I mean, there's been so many times we've watched like trains of like Tian, Carlos, JJ just training through behind each other and just be like, fucking hell, they've just got it, you know, and... And then the, the Slocum and the Park Boys as well. Like, holy shit. Like, yeah. There's a lot know, of hidden gems in that park. Mm. A lot of hidden gems. Took me a long time. I was just watching. Because I only got back down here in 2018. And there are so many riders that I hadn't seen. Mm. It's just like, holy shit. This is yeah. and it's, it's kind immense. Of, it's packed up where Snow Park left off to a degree. Yeah. Um, so... Get back to um, Tamworth. Tamworth? Yeah. Tamworth. Um, who was the crew that you were riding with when you'd go up to the these Snowdome meetings with the rest of the country and shit? Uh, there was, I was riding for a shop back then called Noah's Ark, based down in Stroud. And we'd take up anyone, any one of the crew, anyone who was buying boards, or we'd take a bus up every Tuesday. But I was meeting up with a lot of... 
I met up with the White Lines crew up there to start with, Chris Moran and Matt Barr. Um, there was a couple of local kids, like the Grommies. And these are all now lifelong friends. Tim Warwood, who I commentate the Olympics with. Adam Gendel. But then there were some... There are some really fucking really good riders up there. And Britain always gets short shrift. It's kind of like New Zealand in the same way, but it was turned on its head because Britain, the snowboard industry in the UK was called the bumblebee because it looked like it shouldn't fly, but it Mm. did because there were so many people. Snowboarding was so popular in the mid 90s to late There's 90s. A big consumer population in Britain, right? And it rains yeah. shitloads, so everyone yeah. needs a jacket and snowboard jackets are cool. So yeah. there was a huge amount of apparel being sold. Maybe yeah. not that much hardware. At one point there were PR girls in London going in with Northwave boots on though. Yeah. That was how much money was flowing into it. But so there were people getting a bit of cash, but there was always the perception that the level was quite low. But mm. like anywhere, there's always some naturally talented people. And there was... Duncan Carr is one that shines. He was a skater from West London. And he got on a snowboard. And the way... He was the dry slope terrier, we used to call him. Yeah. He was unbelievable. He'd do front side, backside rodeos. He'd do front threes like Mikel Bang. He was unbelievable. There was Steve Bailey who if you give him like essentially the fly off ramps would be a meter meter 20 tall steve was light as a feather and would gun it in he smoked 40 fags a day and would just Hmm. there was nothing of him but he was doing uh front nines on dry slope back in like 97 98 he'd be able to get six seven meters up over a dead i'll send i'll put a photo of that in this in the show notes for you like there's a photo of him doing a mute and he's easy five six meters up over a dead flat landing just to get your head around how nuts that scene was at the time and what was going on but all of that generation everyone i was riding with steve bailey danny wheeler russ ward chris moran tim ward everyone was just waiting until they could get out to snow yeah like tim ward made that jump at 16 I did a summer in Greece where I turned 18, met a load of people who'd worked chalets in Europe and France and was like, right, I'm going to France. Mm. And before we get into that, um, was there some influences like pros at the time you were looking at for inspiration? Or? Oh, of course. Or there, were, there were all the regulars there in terms of style, like Peter Line, Jamie Lynn, Terry A. But... I was, as I said before, I was drawn really quickly to free riding. Mm. Like, that's the type of snowboarding that... And it was deeply unpopular, like, Mm. mid to late... Like, early 90s, it was there, but, like, by kind of 97, 98, when I started to make some headway in the industry and get some sponsors, free riding was not popular. That's about the same time that Gooch got dropped because he went to Jackson, right? Yeah. Which shows you where free riding was held in the industry. And Forum was king. Like, 97 was probably my biggest year. But, I I mean, this ties in. Like, I had influences there. Like, I was consuming huge amounts of media. Like, all the videos, all the mags. Yeah. 96, 95, 94, 95, 96. But I did my first season, 94, 95. And... I went to Valdez Air, which is one of the biggest areas, highest tree lines, amazing terrain, no snow park. Like, it's as far from 
like mammoth as you could get. Mm. So we, you ride what you get. So yeah. we, like I went up, I hooked up with guides and started free riding. Yeah, that's what we did. So I started looking at Tomba, Sean Palmer, Sean Farmer. Um, oh, what was his name? That uh, oh, the amazing European Serge Vitelli, like oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, like and didn't he have a turn name after him? Yeah, the Vitelli turn, essentially the Euro carve these right. days. But yeah. yeah, there was that was what people were doing. But David David Vincent. The old Abel right. Pro, yeah, board dude, yeah. Holy fuck! I I used to ride with him, not regularly, and we wasn't like I was mates with him. But fuck, if you saw him, you just chase him. Fuck, do you remember? He the... was unbelievably good. Yeah, like anything you ever saw in a video, times that by ten. Really? Yeah, he was he was one of those riders. I saw him do a trick. He invented a trick called the milkshake, which I've never seen anyone else do. It was essentially it's like he'd got a slightly regular backside hip. And he went into it to do a McTwist, like chicken wing. Yeah. And he got it to the chicken wing point and then reverted the rotation and came in Fucking like it was a frontside hell. rodeo. Wow. And he called it the milkshake. So do you remember a movie called Odd Man Out? Yeah. So that That's was... one of my... So the guy who I started emceeing with, Christian Stevenson, yeah. directed Odd so Man Out, Day Tripper, was... and Still Tripping. So Odd Man Out was my first glimpse into European snowboard scene because... Like, growing up here, I was consuming New Zealand and American. Yeah. And so it was all, like, the Vulcan videos were meant a lot to me. and The, the Garden, you know, FLF, um, Riders on the Storm. Yeah, all that stuff. And and Creatures of Habit too, which is still my fucking favourite. <sighs> I know. What is it? Um, vertical Junkies on a White Canvas or something is a subheading. No, not in there. That's I, got I Seth Morrison it. nearly cutting his head off in it, hasn't it? Uh, not you, in two, maybe one that's of the four. later ones. That's four, yeah. But Sorry. so Odd Man Out sort of blew me away. It's like, wow, they've got something going on in Europe. It really was cool to, I mean... There was well, some weird stuff there, but I mean... You know, like... That was, that was a scene, I always call like, those scene videos. Was, because Christian went to Sony Music. He was really tight in with... All the, he was directing some music videos. Mm. Insane dude. He's now a barbecue chef. Yeah. Like with Jamie Oliver. He's like Jamie Oliver's barbecue dude. But he he went into Sony and he was like, dude, man, I can make you the fucking raddest snowboard flicks. People are going to watch this shit and you can introduce everyone to new music. And they were like, okay, yeah, go and do it. How so much do you need? I didn't like them. It took me years to like the music because back then I, I was a teenager. I was like, well, if it's not no effects, Pennywise or fucking Slayer, then ah, uh, you know. But and you go and look at the soundtrack now, and it's, it's Left awesome. Field, The Prodigy, Swerf, Placebo, Swerf Driver. Driver. Yeah, like you had yeah. every new band of the yeah. mid nineties on Actually, those soundtracks, and it was, it was the first wild. time. So I'd, I'd read about the Innsbruck Big Ear. Yeah, but it was the first time I'd seen it, our video of it or footage of it, and I might have even been the first one ever. And Ingmar back riding for Taipei and doing like cab nines and back sevens and with the double grab yep as well but and then 90, not two hands I think at the same it started, time but. it either started in 94 or 95 mm. but 96 was when it kicked off because they'd have it on Grampus night mm. which is like some weird Austrian version of Christmas but where it's de- Grampus is like devil's night mm. and shit gets so loose 
And people would go into the Burgessel Stadium, like this ski jumping stadium, but it was like a, a cauldron. And the noise that place created, that was, there's, there's nothing in snowboarding like that now. Mm. People would go in there and get turbo pissed, and the riders would just go berserk. It was it was crazy, and I think it was what year was I, it? I need to find a copy of that video again. I, I've got I, I've I got those. I can get. I couldn't, get I couldn't you find it on YouTube. Yeah, that was yeah. there was. I mean, there was so much going on in Europe, but same scene that it is today. Like mm. the industry is still based out of Southern California. Yeah. And barring Burton on the East Coast, but to a large extent, it's very difficult, like, to get any kind of exposure there. Method worked really hard on board, did a really good job for a while, but there wasn't. I don't ever feel, even with Transworld and Snowboarder, that there's been a global mag, mm. a mag that actually straddles the Atlantic all and been the Pacific. Continental-based magazines, really, hasn't yeah. it? It's yeah. it's Asian, it's North American, or it's European, yeah. and you you have to as a Brit. It's one of the biggest gifts you get as a snowboarder that you can actually, you're not technically, yeah, you're, you're, you're a European, but you don't have mountains. And so we'd have, there were Brits who were doing seasons in Whistler, in Vale, mm. in Tahoe, in Val d'Isere, Three Valleys. No, and it took until the early 2000s for people to head out to Japan. Yeah. But we were, we, you kind of, you, you had a lot of stories. You so, could see what was going on in Canada, so in the kind US. Of a similar situation to us, although I guess a bit different. Like, it would have been the fact that the UK is primarily flat. So you're like, right, I'm going where the mountains are. Whereas for us, it's like, well, our season's over in 100 days. Right, let's go to where the other mountains are. And so our isolation so creates a wanderlust or curiosity. So it'll be a similar... And vibe, that right? becomes... And that's the fascinating part of being a Kiwi or a, or a snowboarder in that ilk, mm. be it Kiwi or British, is that for me... Snowboarding is romantic. It's mm. got that travel element. And the environment is totally alien. Mm. The act of snowboarding is really important to me. But being in that environment is the most important thing. Like, the mountains, to me, are what feed me. Being up there and quite literally having your horizons broadened, seeing this vast planet is... It's pretty awesome. Because I, I think like even at the height of their pro careers, like guys like Coyer and Will J were based probably spent more time out of New Zealand than in New Zealand due to our geographic location and stuff. And that's a cool opportunity, though. It's huge. see somewhere else and do it. Yeah, and, and that's when it becomes really awesome. And I, there's a there's a girl that you'll hear a lot about in the next decade. She's got, I guarantee you now she's going to be Zoe Sadowski-Sinot's uh, main nemesis. Oh, yeah. In the next decade. Her name's Mia Brooks. Remember that yeah, name? Mia Brooks. So she's just won Junior World Champs. She's run the, won the rookie tour. She's still only 15. She landed a uh, cab 12 at um, wow. nines. She's, and she has from? the UK. She right. has the best style. But her dad, Nige, looked at me this winter because they ride larks all winter. And I, I was on the lift with him and he was like, you know that, like, the kids don't even know how good snowboarding is yet. They think it's just like coming up here and riding the park and having a good time. They've got no idea what it's like once you start traveling, partying, and hanging out and meeting yeah. all of those incredible people. And and it hits you like, oh, my God, yes. This is, f for most people, that's what snowboarding is. And I, I hope that that never leaves it. It can't. 
It can't. You do get people. What I was going to say about going to France or Austria or like people who live in those resorts, they they never have that. Mm. They live there. This is just what life's like. The world is mountains. It is Mm. snow. It is winter. And they take all of that for granted. And as Mm. Kiwis and Brits, that that traveling element, the meeting new people is is huge. It's a gift. It helps develop a certain style because you like you've got your own, but you're taking a bit from where you go into different places, and suddenly it's like, oh, I like what the Canadians are doing here, and all the Japanese have got some cool shit, and, and suddenly you got your own goulash style that's different, same, same, but different. Yeah, and, and amazing. Like we'd started talking about comps that were coming up at that time. I I think it was '99 or 2000. Jakob Soderqvist. And the Swedish crew put the battle together. That's right. Which was the first continental contest. So you'd have a Scandi or a home team. Then you'd have a Central European team, North American team, an Asian team, and an Oceana team. Yeah. And it was... I I got on with those boys so well. I'd started emceeing events. I mean, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Mm. But... That's right. I can always take it back. This is good. (laughs) (laughs) We, We got into... I started emceeing events and Jakob got me up there and it was the first time I'd seen Japanese snowboarders. And I was like, I could not believe how hard they would slam and just get up. Yeah. If you've ever ridden with Japanese snowboarders, you know it. Those fuckers do not feel pain. Just get like, take the biggest hit. I've seen that in the, you know, in the nineties where the Japanese halfpipe army that would come out at Kadrona and you see some of them like, how the fuck did they just get up from that? You know, and and like, and then they're fucking walking back up the pipe and dropping back in again. It was like, man, that would have ended most people's days. Yeah, that shit. exactly. Like yeah. they had this wild rail and they'd cut some ice steps in down the side of one of the big landings. And one of the Japanese guys went like teeth first down these steps, oh, and I was fuck. like, Jesus Christ! And he just got up like I was like, kind of on the mic. I was like, thumbs up to him, like you're. And he was like, yeah, two thumbs up. Like, yeah, I'm great. Another lap. Hit me. I won up. And that was was my first introduction to New Zealand snowboarders, New Zealand and Australian snowboarders. And there was, I think it was Benny Bright, Marcus Whirl, Quentin Robbins, um, Dylan Butt. And I think, I'm pretty sure, I'd need his clarification, but I'm sure I remember seeing this, like, skinny little stick with two giant teeth that must have been Will J at that time. Yeah, he was in that team. He would have been, like, it was so funny. And those, like, for a continent that you'd seen a little bit, like, Terry had obviously filmed Harkinson, Subject Harkinson down here, which I think had brought New Zealand to a wider audience within Mm. snowboarding. But that was the first time I'd seen riders. And the the board control, it was that classic, exactly the same as Scandinavians mm. who grow up riding ice or melt freeze. It's that same really good precision board control. You look at all of those riders and they had really good trick selection and really good board control. And they stood out because of that. And they held their own against some big, big name riders yeah. of that ilk. I was super, super impressed. Red. I mean, that... Especially at that time too, those names talk about putting our best foot forward. Oh, it was like, like you're talking Willie Yuli Luoma, Yoni Mackinnon, yeah. Ingmar Batman, Terry A. Harkinson, and Kim Christensen, I think, in the uh, Scandinavian team. 
in the European team, I think it was Jonas Emery, Tristan Pico, a really young Roman Demarkey. Um, it wasn't David Vincent, but it was another. Wasn't um, Ubi Ahmed and Albin in there too? Yes, Mickey yeah. Albin was in there. Um, the US team was like Andy Finch. It was a really weird mix bump, like Guillaume Morissette, that crazy good pipe rider, first guy yeah. ever to do switch backside spins in the pipe. Yeah. Um, Andy Finch, I think he was like. Do you remember Ben? No, it wasn't Ben Hinckley. He was a big air jump rider, wasn't he? Might have been Keir Dillon. Might have been in there. I'd have to go back and have a look. Mm. I can't remember. But there were some big names for those guys to hold their own. Yeah, and they really did. But, they re- genuinely did. Mm. But then you mean the names you mentioned too is like Quentin Robbins was the and Dylan Butt were like the best in this country for so long, and then Will J his track records there you know and exactly the and same thing we talked about before like bright and marcus yeah like, like those guys yeah. would be big big name riders with regular video parts anywhere mm. else in the like if they'd been north american or european yeah. riders well dylan butt was one of the inspirations behind this podcast was he well it happened 220 so i've known Dill for quite a while and he'd come by the workshop and say what's up and we're shooting the shit and then he Goes on, leaves and goes on about his day. And one of the rental guys comes up and goes, who was that punter you were speaking to? He's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Motherfucker, that guy guided Travis Rice around this country. Like, his little finger's better than everyone. Like, that ain't no punter. And that's when it's like, fuck, the story's being lost. <laughs> you know? Well, that's, yeah. I mean, it goes back to what we were saying about hot laps at Cardi's. Mm. And you can see Will J, Dill, like, good riding DNA, it doesn't go anywhere. Maybe the tricks get slightly less technical. Maybe the size drops down a little bit. You don't have the pop in old mm. legs, but you can still see the DNA and the level those boys were at in their riding today. Yeah. And that's for me, that's glorious. It's like living history. Yeah. Sorry, boys, if that sounds... <laughs> <laughs> living history. I make you sound like fossils. Mm. So I want to take it back to Europe uh, in your first seasons there. Were you based mainly in that one area in France, or were you... Yeah, um, a different place each season. Or? I do no. The first five years I did Val d'Isere, and we'd get sometimes a couple of seasons in. They built a park at the bottom of the mountain that was on a free pommer, so we could save the equivalent of like at the time probably about thousand fifteen hundred bucks and buy a season pass in Saint Foy, this incredible little free ride resort down the hill. So we had park in Val d'Isere and free ride down the bottom. But I mean, in terms of what was going on there were five or six snowboarders in town at that time and this was as frou-frou as kind of 70s it was there was Val d'Isere is a super rich resort it's kind of in the Zermatt Verbier vein of European resorts and there was that layover of the sort of when playboys walked the earth in the 70s when every resort thought it was a James Bond set like a lot of very rich stuck up business owners and ski instructors who didn't want skate rats coming up and terrorizing the mountain and there were i think there were five of us six of us up there the first year i was up there and our behavior certainly didn't help oh really ingratiate us with them give us an example I'll give you the PG-13 version, but there was, there was a lot of contraband going around. Mm. And brilliantly, a lot of that was being buried under one of the worst ski instructor's house. So that if anything ever happened, we'd just go, he's the main dealer. 
<laughs> there was. I remember. I remember fights on pistes because there was so much animosity. Like uh, lifties banning you, not letting you get on um, certain lifts. But the. I mean, for me, one of the biggest things when I think of that era and the snowboarding we were doing then. It was, and I don't see this so much because so much, the kits got way better. So you can, your level of control has increased and you've also got way, like a lot of people get instruction now, maybe not on Ruapeho, <laughs> but um, it just feels like people are way more in control. Like the level we were at, but what we were attempting back then was so out of whack. And I think, but that was bred by what we were seeing. You go and watch some of Sean Farmer's parts or Steve Graham's parts or, I mean, Palm had the talent. I don't want to lump him into the same bit, but like Jim Rippey, a stuntman, essentially. Mm. You just send it. And so many of the people I was hanging out with at that time were just raw senders. Yeah. Like I could fill Jerry of the day five times over, like a, a month's worth of feed every day with what i was watching back then yeah but that was just what it was wasn't it like i mean we almost idolized the the stuntmen yeah but you know like well boozy the clown yeah. like all of those videos like that was yeah. who can backflip off a building and yeah. break both their ankles yes it's awesome neck a bottle yeah. of whiskey i mean it's it's so far removed from what we see today yeah but the, i mean i remember watching and it blew my mind people riding motocrosses through supermarkets just tearing the shit off shelves. Like whiskey too. Yeah. <laughs> those those videos were just yeah. amazing. But like you say, creature habit, like that's what we were seeing. So that's mm. what you replicate. And it was, they were, it was loose times. Fuck man, creatures of habit too. I think my favourite part is, um, it's not even that stunt man. He is like Andy Hetzel, Mike Rankwit riding powder in Utah. And it's just like, Fuck, yeah, tram laps at Ulta, uh, yeah, Snowbird, isn't it it? It, it? it almost, like, you should, I'm sure Tourism Utah made that part. Like, it was just like, damn, i got to go. But, yeah, I hadn't even thought about the sort of the the just huck it. It's been a long time since I guess I've seen it, but... Oh, this... Yeah, like, like we talk about Jim Rippey, and he was a stuntman, and yes, he did these fives and whatever, but you compared that to someone like Noah or Jamie Lynn, and they're two different tricks. Yeah. Like, the finesse on one hand and then just the pure send mm. the kind of metal senders at, at the other and there was the industry was so big like Transworld was nearly 500 pages thick at that time yeah. so you'd have like there was room for that spectrum you could have everyone in this glorious big space of snowboarding it was whatever you wanted it to be mm. but certainly there was so much money swilling around that people who probably weren't good enough to get money were getting at least gear, yeah, or, and in some cases money. I mean, the the one who stands out to me, and he was like Gumby, an Australian rider, and he's still in. He's in the North Wave Drake edits, thirty years of North Wave Drake, and we hooked up first season that I was in Valdez Air, and he is as loose as units get. He mm. turned up with a threadbow lifties jacket. A pair of pants that were so short, he had to tie them to the... He was wearing Caterpillar work boots, and he was lacing the pants into the boots. They wouldn't actually touch the top of the work boots. But he was just... And he was a, he'd got this flaming red afro that had blast out anywhere. But he, he just sent it until he actually got good. Yeah. Like, it took 
four or five seasons, but I, I can't believe he didn't break himself. Like a couple of times, I saw him cave a set of goggles inwards once, and the cracked lenses cut the tops of his eyelids. But that's one know. like his his skeleton. I've always believed that he might be the link between humans and cavemen. He's, yeah. It's like his skeleton's made of something else. You just I watched one night on some fairly strong psychedelics. Um, a guy he'd let off a fire extinguisher in an apartment building. And the concierge, the guy who looks after the building, came out. And there was a scaffold pole in a sleeve on the entrance pathway that's there to measure the snow so he can guide his snowblower in and out. And he pulls this, like, probably metre and a half length of scaffold pole, like skate coping, out of the sleeve. And Gumby's just laughing at him. And the dude draws it back and brings it down on Gumby's head, like the last foot of it. Hits him with an iron bar on the top of his head. Yeah. And I can only... Either Gumby's got like a cast iron skull or it's like when you have an egg and you can't crush it end to end. Yeah. Like he smashes him with this pole and Gumby just looks at him and goes, <laughs> is that all you've got, cunt? <laughs> and the guy's like holding this pole, like vibrating with the pole going back up and he's like... He realises what he's done, that he's hit a dude as hard as he can with a metal pole and just drops it and runs back inside. <laughs> Such an Australian convict too, eh? It was unreal. And he turned up to the British Championships <coughs> that year, which the, they were in Val d'Isere, I think, in 95. And me and Gumby were like, right, we're going we're gonna to show people we can ride. And we didn't have shit. Like, I had no freestyle smarts. And it was border cross pipe, big air. There was no slope start. I think there was slalom in there, though. But big air was the last day. And Gumby went into, like, he looked at me and I tried to front flip off a bar the night before, caught my feet and then gone head first into a concrete floor. <laughs> and to this day, I'm pretty sure I broke my neck, but I never got it x-rayed. <laughs> but I basically couldn't move my head for about eight weeks. But Gumby looked at me on the day and he's like, it's not a fucking best trick contest. It's a big air contest. I'm just going to go bigger than fucking anyone else. And I was like, I'm not sure that it really works like that, Gumby. But the guy, Blackflies, the old goggle brand, was sponsoring yeah. it. And the guy from the UK who ran it came up to me and he was like, you can talk, can't you? And I was like, yeah, a little bit. He's like, take the mic. So that was my first ever MCing gig. And I'm stood there on the, on the lip of the kicker. And I get handed, like after about an hour of qualifying, everyone's sending it, I get handed a list with eight names on it. And it's a local crowd, so I start reading them out. I'm like, Stu Brass, Chris Moran, Steve Bailey, Justin Allenson, Russ Ward, Danny Wheeler. And then everyone's like, Gumby, Gumby. And Collins, the guy from Blackfoot, is like, no, not Gumby, not Gumby. He's looking at me like making the slit throat gesture like not Gumby. I get down to the end of the list and I'm like, and Gumby! And everyone's like, Yeah! <laughs> So Gumby hikes up there and the run-in's through the middle of the half-pipe and then it's just a mound of snow at the bottom with a shaped kicker and a bit of a landing. Gumby hikes up into the trees above the half-pipe out of sight. I'm like, fucking hell, he's serious. And then a couple of riders come down and then I'm like, next in, uh, Gumby! Silence. Nothing happens. <laughs> We're all looking up and then all of a sudden he pops out of the trees Already he's doing about 30 k's an hour and he ollies where everyone else is sat, lands on the backside of the running mound for the pipe and tucks. That's where everyone else is setting off and he's already doing 35, 40 k's an hour. Bear in mind the transition is for this kicker is so small and so steep. So 
at the start of the run-in, he's already going too fast to deal with the compression. <laughs> and I can see that. I'm like, holy fuck. The crowd are going nuts. Like They're like, Gumby, Gumby, Gumby. It's like listening to a tribal drummer, a human sacrifice. And he's just blasting down through the middle. He hits the transition, at the, hits the, the bottom of the kicker, and his legs collapse instantly with the compression. And he flies. I'm stood right next to the kicker, and I watch him squirt out. Already the board's above his head, and he's flying skyward. And there's a sequence of this somewhere. He keeps going up in this involuntary backflip. He's still going up as he passes the knuckle. He's still going up as he clears the landing. And now he's about, probably best guess, like eight, ten metres up over a flat piece in a half backflip. He just goes, throws his head back to try and initiate a backflip at the apex. And then comes down straight, dead straight, like a stone into this piece. And it's that hollow spring pack. So everyone feels it. The nose of the board just snaps off and hits him in the leg. And then his mass hits it just like... Total quiet. He's just lying there. A few people run in and there's a huddle. For about a minute, nothing's going on. And I'm like, oh, well, we hope he's going to be all right. Then all of a sudden, boof, this fist's pumps up into the air everyone goes berserk (laughs) and he gets dragged off to do what he called a dog which was piss blood for three days and just hole up in the cellar but that to me that epitomized that sender generation those people who really would just they did they lacked what they lacked in skill they made up for in balls yeah and i I lament to this day i lament the loss of them i mean Mm. You're obviously not going to see it in a more professionalised sport, but it was it was one of those special but things that the night is delivered. Would it work now? Probably wouldn't have the same whoa thing. No, people are too no. good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. can't get away and, with it. And the equipment's too good. You so know what like, killed it, I think, is video. Yeah. Because you could, you could, with a photo, you could launch off something, get the grab... The mag might publish it. Mm. The moment the video came out, those people were old news. You couldn't, yeah. you couldn't fake it anymore. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm just tripping <laughs> on that because I've had a few moments in my life where I've, you know, clipped a heel edge coming on out of a, a Buddha in the back country and been going way too fast. And I remember just being lying horizontal on my back. And like see the landing, and I'm like I'm still going up, and it's a fucking terrifying thing to know that there's nothing. And luckily, I had like a foot of powder, but like that's ter- like I can't even imagine what he must have felt when he's like. Well, he probably didn't care. I know the same thing happened down here. Like as soon as I started coming down here in the early 2000s, people would point out that's Eagle Rock. Like someone leapt off that oh, thing. That's that. that yeah. Like, yeah. they were the, like New Zealand was Matt, Matt king Hunt. of that con- that that terrain and that approach to snowboarding, I think. Yeah, well, there was, I just remember coming up as a weekend warrior in the 90s as a grommet and just like that's the things that got your attention was the, fuck, they jumped off that. I didn't even, <laughs> I didn't even know Tindy wasn't, I think Tindy was an acceptable thing back then. I've seen a lot of Tindy thrown off big rocks. <laughs> it took a while yeah. for that one to sink in. Mm. Yeah, thank God it did though. Uh, speaking of like maybe more balls and brains, um, you ended up commentating the King of the Hill in Alaska in '97. 
not commentating it, riding it. Riding it? Yeah. Oh, wow, I've got my notes. <laughs> yeah. I've got my wires crossing. No, it's probably, it's my fault. I, um, that was, that was definitely, I was a really, anyone who's seen me ride knows that I'm terminally mediocre at snowboarding. But that was the zenith of what I did. I'd kind of got my heart, for me, as I said, I was a free rider and I'd got my heart set on going to Alaska. And at the time, that competition was a pinnacle. Yeah, that was like that was Goodwill. Um, Farmer had been up there a couple of times. I think Ranquit had been up there, and I worked out with the shop I was sponsored by, and I had like a like basically a flow deal with Burton. I got they just bought it was the first year of the supermodel, and oh. I got a supermodel six eight. And I was a skinny little runt, so it was an absolute whopper of a board. I got a plane ticket to Anchorage, and then I I managed to, I think I wrote to him, like pre-email, obviously. This is 97. No, 90, it was the autumn of 96, and I wrote to Nick Parata, and then I called him, and he was like, yeah, come and ride, man. We've never had anyone from the UK. It'd be awesome to have you. So I bought my ticket and went out to Alaska at the end of that season. And I'd spent the whole season riding the steepest stuff i could find to get there and it was it was such an eye-opener so how how was that first drop in or drop off on a peak in alaska (sighs) well the so the comp back then the comp weirdly it was a speed day a freestyle day and an extreme day right and i was just like i've never done any speed comps and my freestyle is pretty edgy at best but the speed day um, there's a there's a French dude called Antonin Lutagi who had Tourette's and he was so funny. He didn't swear so much. He'd just be like, <laughs> when, but whenever you'd see him get interviewed, he'd speak perfectly. Perfectly, he'd be like, oh yeah, I ride this in really fast. I'm fine. And then he'd stop speaking. And be like, oh fuck, <laughs> okay. But he was so fucking quick, and he was in hard boot. <coughs> Matt Goodwill was there. Teal Copeland, R.I.P. Um, Jason Borgstead, Axel Papote, Philip Lamont, um, obviously me. Laurie Gibb, Carlene Jeffries, uh, Julie Zell. Uh, was Victoria Jalous at those? No, no, no. She was on the filming program with oh, Burton, right. and it was. It was kind of, it was a lot of, there were some really good kind of almost snowboarding alpinists, I want to say, like with Jim Zellers. But then there was, at the same time, there was some really, like Goodwill was on the sendier end of things. Yeah, yeah. I got a lift down the hill with him one day and he was really high on acid and drinking tequila, driving at 110 miles an hour. I was like, <laughs> fucking hell, okay. There's some Hunter S. Thompson shit. Yeah, it, it really was. It was, like this was... It was ABA, Alaska Backcountry Adventures, were running it off Loveland, not Loveland Pass. I can't remember what the pass was called there. Was that by Valdez? Yeah, it was about Thompson Pass. That's it, yeah. And, I mean, the whole experience was so surreal. I think I was 21, and I walked into the supermarket just trying to get some fruit. Mm. And, like, the shelves were almost empty. They were waiting for the boat to come in in Valdez. And there was a watermelon that was 26 bucks, was the only bit of fruit or vegetable that they had there. And Nick Parata was super into his weed at that time. And I I was no good. 
Like I've never ever been able to smoke weed, and like they got me stoned on the first night. It was what they did. They didn't really drink that much. Like I lost my jacket, I lost my board, and I was so like, this is what I want to do. This is where I want to be at. And the wheels fell off on the first night. I was so upset with myself, but I got it all together. I found all of my bits and bobs. Started to find my feet in the hills. The big revelation was that Alaska isn't all sixty-five degree slopes. Like there's a lot of it is quite mellow. And we were able to, we did a couple of warm-up runs on this face called School Bus, which was just epic. The dude, the guide was just like, don't go too far to the left and you can hit any of these rollers as fast as you like. Mm. And you'd be burning down and you'd be able to ollie off this roller and your board would be a foot off the snow, two feet off the snow, three feet off the snow. You're just tracking next to the roller and then suddenly it'd drop away and you're 20 feet off the snow, 30 feet off the snow, Whoa. flying into these big bowls. But then went up to the speed run and you you get taken up to the top of a 45 degree face and everyone's just like bang, sending it straight down the face and there was a cliff straight band lining that, yeah, straight lining oh, from the top yeah. and there's a cliff band at the top that you've got to ollie down and then you just dead straight and then into this gully but it was about two miles long I think I was sick after the first run I was so tired but I, that that settled me a lot and then the freestyle day was a total ride off I think Jason Borgstead won it with a really nice cab five. Paporte took a really crazy run, got second, I think. But then when Extreme Day rolled round, a couple of really good things happened. I got in a seat with the window in the heli, and I, the heli took the right route, and I got to see this whole run, and I dropped fourth, so I had a really unique run. I took this pencil shoot into a close-out cliff about 30 feet, and I put frontside air on it, started out, absolutely stomped it and rode out was super pumped got to the bottom it's kind of like oh my god i did it i did this i got it and um laurie gibb walked up to me and she was like someone said nice front side air man i was like oh thanks and laurie gibb was like ain't no fucking freestyle contest and I was like, <laughs> my ego just like a bag of crisps like <laughs> Back in my shell. They <laughs> uh, kept it real up there, right? Yeah. Um, Goodwill straight lined the whole face and won the sword and came first. But it was, as we were talking about earlier, I met so many people, cameramen, that I've bumped into decades later. But it opened my eyes. And I kind of, I think in my own terms, I knew that I was never going to be Terrier. So that was kind of my zenith. Mm. So, speaking of photographers, what's this moment with a Belgian photographer when mentioned off mic? <laughs> well, we, after the comp was done, I'd gone for 12 days and I think I'd got, I'd sorted out an overdraft before I left. I just went and spent all the money on helis and hooked up with this Belgian photographer who was shooting for onboard. And he'd got it into his head that he didn't want to go and shoot any of these mellow runs. And he'd, he'd turn around to ABA, Alaska Backcountry Adventures, and was like, we're not wasting our money on any of these flat runs. Like, take us to the good shit. And that's like a red rag to a bull. Because there's no... There's, there's no... No one's policing the shit out there then. Like, people were... If you've ever seen Lines and the interviews, mm. Axel Poporte's film, and there's interviews with Ranquit, like, they were riding with shotguns in case they ran into Wolverines. Yeah. Like, there was no avalanche gear. And I'm green as fuck. I I can ride steep stuff, but I've got I've got and I've got a peeps and I've got my shovel, but I haven't got a harness on. I haven't got like and this is glaciated terrain. 
this heli guy's like, okay, I'll take you there. And we just get flown up and we're on this kind of aret, this knife edge ridge. And the heli comes in and lands the skids of the heli, the front of the skids in the snow. But the back of the heli from the pilot back is just hovering over this six. Towing. Yeah. Yeah. Full. But it's a 600 foot sheer cliff underneath us. It's not like a snowy face if anything happens. And I'm furthest into the heli where everyone's getting out next to the cage so you have to get out of the heli while he's hovering so full downdraft shimmy along the skid and then get onto this ridge that looks essentially like a cloud and there's barely room for five people on it this photographer and the four riders but i'm last out so i have to open the cage and then hand these giant fucking essentially like tennis racket covers snowboards with so much windage from the downdraft across to everyone else clinging onto this helicopter eventually i get onto this little cloud i'm up there and the guide's like okay there's room for one person down here and i was like that's me i'm going he's like okay and the rest of you are rappelling down into this other bowl so i sit up on this thing and he's like okay Keep your eyes on the edge. You'll see us come across the bottom. When you see us traverse, then you can drop in and your slough is not going to affect us. He said, whatever you do, when you get to the bottom, make sure you pull out to the right because like this cliff's out. It's like an 800-foot cliff. You're going to die if you don't make it out onto the shoulder. Pointed out. I was like, okay, cool. I sit up there. I'm waiting for about <laughs> 20 okay. minutes. Okay, cool. I see these ants <laughs> like traversing across in front of me and then they pull up on the shoulder. I'm like, okay, I can go like dangle my heels over the edge of this cloud and as i stand up the snow's on my back it's that steep i'm looking down i'm like holy shit it's a jump turn and i've seen stuff like this since and likes of jeremy jones and ralph backstrom zav of all straight line stuff like this now but i jump turned it and i jumped with my my back in the snow i jumped did a 180 and I landed like chest and hands against like snow on my cheek like that. It's like 50 degrees. And I've fallen so far in the jump turn that I can't reach up with my hands and touch where I've just jumped off my heels. I made four turns like that, jumping around down this insanely steep terrain, peaking. And I start to get into slightly mellow end of the chute. And I start to open up some turns so that by the time I exit the chute and get onto this apron, I'm like, this is fucking mellow. But it's gone from 50 degrees in the chute to 35 degrees on the apron. In Europe, like, which is still my sensibilities, I'm thinking 35, 40 degrees in the chute, 25 degrees on the apron. So I start opening up big turns. And then third, second or third turn, I'm like, oh, fuck, I've got to pull up onto this shoulder. And I look across at everyone where they've stopped and the guide's just fucking arms out like, well, what the fuck are you doing? And I look down, I've got about 40 or 50 metres to this cliff edge where I'm going to die. <laughs> so I've, I've got my toe edging and all my weight's over the tail of the board and it's starting to skip. You know that feeling where mm-hmm. it's just starting, like it's rodeo. Yeah. You're clinging on, you're like, fucking hell. And you, I knew if I miss this, I'm going to spin off the back of the tail and just tomahawk down the face. Somehow, I, probably because I was on a 168, I held on to that toe edge with about 15 metres to spare and pulled up. And the guide's like, the fuck were you? And he started and then he saw me and they, there was no colour. I was white and shaking. And he looked at me and he goes, you knew what you fucking did there. And I said, yes. He said, don't do that again. 
<laughs> Fucking hell. <laughs> and that's, that's what happens if you ask for the gnarly shit in Alaska. Yeah. <laughs> so, so your mate put you guys on us, eh? He wasn't uh, my mate, and he yeah. still isn't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, you mentioned onboard, um, and so you had a bit of a stint in the UK Snowboard Media Editing magazine. Yeah, well, the year after that, I broke my knee. Uh, a classic ACL but um, just attrition the start of it happened when I backflipped off a wall in a nightclub trying to impress my future wife but then a couple of big air competitions with shitty landings under rotating back sevens repeatedly just it just it it just it was a war of attrition and it tore the ACL and I didn't know how to fix it I wasn't getting good advice and in the end, I let it go. I had the surgery and had to take a winter off. And I'd been writing about all of my adventures for each of the mags. But then White Lines were like, do you want a job? So I took it and started writing. And I loved it. It was, to me, like I'd been forcing a round peg into a square hole as a average semi-professional snowboarder. And suddenly I was like, this is where I belong in this industry. I love collecting and telling stories and no one no one wanted to stick around at that time so within I'd started out as kind of I don't know writer and within six months I was editing it editing the mag so and I spent four years there and it was epic it was it started the the broken knee started my career as I know it now right and so how was was there a bit of a burden or uh not burden weight on your shoulders being the editor of magazines so what what was british or european it was british, british at the time it was really and it's it had a really irreverent sense of humor we would mm. take the piss out of everything so so did that ever come back to bite you where someone's like hey fucker oh yeah loads of you know? steve scott <laughs> when steve scott was british snowboard champion he did it because he was such a good all-round rider mm. And I'll, uh, I gave him credit for that at the time, but I did call his half-pipe run a workhorse-style pipe run, and he was deeply upset about that. I took a few dead arms for that over the years. Workhorse-style pipe run? Just yeah. a lot of tricks in it or something? Uh, well, it wasn't... He knew how to get... He'd squeeze loads of hits out, mm. do loads of different grabs, straight airs. I think he had a couple of spins. He could do, like, a front three and a cab three. But, yeah, he was... Because he was... a incredible border cross rider really mm. strong free rider mm. but yes yeah, he hadn't spent much time in the pipe but he knew how to work it to get the best run he could right i wonder i don't know if he'd admit that now well, he's <laughs> going to be coming on the mic in winter time so <laughs> you know ask him definitely <laughs> ask him i'll probably get a punch just for this again though now. um but yeah we we had one woman i remember because we used to write utter filth and she wrote in and she said, um, I can't believe this filth that you're passing off as a snowboard magazine. I found this magazine by my son's bed. I am never buying it for him again. So we made that the star letter and gave her a lifetime subscription. <laughs> <laughs> so is it kind of more along the lines of Blunt and Big Brother, what you guys were doing with one Exactly. Exactly. And we, because with any media, you reflect 
what you're seeing and that was British snowboarding was about it wasn't about being amazing it was about traveling and having fun partying it was a, like the best riders made it look good mm. but we knew that no one was going to be making Craig Kelly or Terrier or Ingmar money mm. it was just about carrying the blag on as long as you could and then you throw in that sort of dry British sense of humor as well and it's going to be some yeah. entertaining reading so our summer camp tour of all the European glaciers would have we built backpacks which would have five litre bottles of coke in them and we'd fill those up with industrial quantities of washing up liquid and then go and sit on the sides of some of Europe's biggest fountains and there'd be four of us emptying 40 litres of washing up liquid into a fountain and we we made that a 27 page feature I think on one issue we ruined some amazing Uh, it happens every year in Dunedin. So you got the fountains in the octagon, and it's like you go past and all these bells are like, oh, the students back in town. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was it was so much fun, and I learned so much about media. Like mm. everyone, it was email came in during that time, but most people didn't have it, so I'd just get sent random bits of paper with pencil scribbles on it for and stories. Make an article out of that. Yeah. Fuck. So that's a bit of work deciphering someone's. And then, like, slide film and all that stuff, right? And, yep, exactly. Um, was there, in the British sort of scene at the time, was there, was White Lines the only, ma- was there a few mags? No, we had Snowboard World, Document, Snowboard UK and White Lines. There <laughs> were four mags no. battling it out for the ad, for, ad revenue. For a country that doesn't have big hills, that's pretty <laughs> impressive, right? <laughs> Hardly any snowboarders. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it was... And that was the thing. We but, kind of did our own thing, though. But, so you say there's hardly any snowballs there, but was those mags more consumed by the Brits living in Europe, yeah. say, than yeah. the so Brits living just, in the mainland? And that's what we do. They, a lot of them would get taken out, but I'd have the... My working year ran from... It was year-round, but I'd make we'd make the mags from kind of mid-June would be the start. First deadline would be mid-July. And then the last deadline would be early January. I'd have all the mags sewn up by early January, and then I'd be out on the road touring round from January to May. And getting stories for June again. Yeah, and I'd go to... In the, most of the time, you'd get free jollies. I'd be able to string the free jollies together for oh. events, like blag trips. Oh, so right. the events would be like, come and do Aaron Star, Come and do O'Neill evolution come and do the burton open come and do the u.s open so you start stringing stuff together when you're getting taken to the events Mm. and it was at those events i'd done a couple of the british comps on the mic after that big air and then people started asking me to do the european events right so i within by 2000 99 2000 no, it was 2000. I was doing every major snowball so contest in Europe. Yeah. Oh. And, that's, and that's where it started. I got, did Aaron Style, did the Burton European Open, did the US Open, did the US Open the year that I was there with Nelson Wormstead and the Dingo. Oh, no. And Sean White was about to drop in to the pipe in yeah. Stratton. And the Dingo started chanting... White power, white power. Oh, white. no. 
And Nelson just looked at him and he was like, uh, maybe that means something else in Australia, Dingo. <laughs> there was just, it was horrific. Tumbleweed. Oh, my God. Um, but I did one of the things I was most proud of. I think the, the most similar thing we've seen to natural selection before this was the Arctic Challenge. Oh, yeah. When Terrier started that, he started it in 99 and I got up there in 2000 and that was just incredible so can you describe what the arctic challenge was for uh, our listeners yeah it was it was basically the start they wanted to run it as the figurehead event for what used to be the ttr so you've got the federation into the international ski federation or fis that run competitive snowboarding now the the opposite to that was the isf the international snowboard federation which then became the ttr mm. and terrier helped set that up with drew stevenson and together they had this vision of building a snowboarder run tour and the arctic challenge was going to be the grand finale of that and mm. it was it was terrier's vision of what it should look like there was a pipe comp there was a slope style comp and there was a quarter pipe comp. Mm, and it was but, up in the very north of Norway or something, wasn't it? It was in Lofoten, this island in the Arctic Circle. And the first year I went up there, you got given this lanyard, like a laminate on a lanyard, and it just had a load of phone numbers. And it was skate park. You ring this dude up and there's a fish freezer. And you, there's a skate park in the fish freezer. You want to go snowmobiling? Ring this dude. He'll take you on the snowmobiles and you can go free riding. You want to go surfing? Ring Jamin. Jamin's got the wetsuits. They'll take you to Unstad and you can surf with Orca. Uh, you want to play paintball? Call this guy. He'll give you the guns and the ammo and you just go out on the peninsula and shoot the shit out of each other till the gas runs out. I got shot. We we worked out when the guns run out of ammo. They're like, it'd be so as soon as you heard that noise everyone who still had gas left in their guns would home in on the person who'd run out of gas and absolutely laser them <laughs> and one guy we were walking down the hill and we heard this guy run out of gas so I was scampering down the hill and when I saw him I was like bap, 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 my gun ran out of gas and the guy at point blank range just swung around slowly and looked at me shot me in the teeth oh <laughs> my god my lips swelled up so I couldn't speak for two days fucking hell but that place it was the most insane like the after parties we went into this we got all the snowboarders and the crew got locked in this barn and then they shipped in all the women from this other town who ran off a bus like it was a Beatles concert. And these women just ran in and started grabbing pros and dragging them outside. Like, I've never seen it. It was insane. Like, there were girls grabbing guys, dragging them outside, and then running back in again to grab another one, getting as many as they could before anyone else got them. Fucking hell. Turbo Negro played. Yeah. Don't say motherfucker, motherfucker! This, it was unbe- like people getting absolutely smashed. And then the, uh, because it's Norway, they can't, you can't drink um, spirits or strong beer. You can't get hold of them in normal bars or it's insanely expensive. But the Hells Angels on Lofoten were running, there was a chapter of Hells Angels who had this bar above one of the big fish freezers because that's the main industry up there. And we walked out of that party. It was just so loose. It was like, this is nuts. Like, um, this is not really me. And I can't remember who I went with. It was one of the riders. Might have been David Benedict. But we ended up going to this Hells Angels bar. 
and you knock on the door and they have a peephole up above and you go up this concrete staircase and the only drink they serve up there is this stuff called Korshka which is ether and black coffee my god so you can sniff it and you're you get cooked like it's like aerosols you get and when we got up there I was like, what the fuck is going on? There's a black metal band playing in the corner and there's about five people just lying face down on the floor. And then everyone else is just kind of walking around looking like they're in different states of concussion. So you order these drinks and then you'd start drinking and then you just black out. Then you come around again and try and drink. It was the one of the maddest nights I've ever had. Holy shit. Yeah. And yeah, that was... I definitely lost some brain cells. Woke up like in a pool of my own, like spit, glued to a carpet somewhere, and I'd missed all of my flights home. But it was worth it. That was that was one of them. We mentioned the battle. Did yeah. that um, Aaron style USA? Yeah, that was for two or three years. It was they were really good times. Really, Fucking really good times. You were seeing the whole time. Yeah. All there. That's gnarly. <laughs> in that heyday, where, the, where there was a lot of money washing around in snowboarding, and there was it was really easy to have a good time on someone else's dollar. Yeah, I mean, I think that early two thousands, late nineties, early two thousands, a lot of money in snowboarding, huge amount. And, well, yeah. I listened to Kevin Jones on the bomb hole, and he was pretty reluctant to talk about it. But there were riders, a lot of riders on seven figure salaries. Yeah, crazy, eh? Unbelievable. Yeah. That's mm. crazy money. Someone was trying to tell me that it's still the same amount of money in snowboarding, but there's so many more riders now. But I don't really no get way. that. No way. No, there's. I think there's more money, but I think a lot of brands... like There's a lot more mainstream brands too now, isn't there? <sighs> yeah, and I, I get caught up in politics if we go down this route because mm. I think there's been a lot of money some corporates or some brands that sit on that corporate scale have leached money out in there's been some bad decisions made mm. like seven figures spent on sponsoring coachella like that's yeah, that's, that's wrong yeah. in my book that's money taken out of grassroots snowboarding's pocket and i don't care how much you're making there's no way you can justify spending money at coachella yeah it's just you and your mates going for a massive party so yeah. Right, so from commentating competitions, um, how did the TV thing come about? Um, the, the, looking back at it, it's really, it's really interesting. I mean, it was a long, long time ago now. So 98 was the first TV job I got, and I was emceeing Bordex, this competition in London, and the MTV Snowball had turned up and their presenter had gone and done something else. And they were like, do you, you're on the mic, can you do a bit of TV for us? And I was like, yeah. I was like, I'm going to be a TV star. So I did a couple of bits of TV and was like sat back waiting for the work to start rolling in and nothing happened. I got the same job the year later, though, and I got a little more of a taste and then nothing happened for another year. And then, I think in 2001, random meeting, mate's birthday, ended up, this guy was like, you could be a good presenter. And he'd got a, the, one of the first ad-funded models. He'd gone to Channel 4, the TV sh- the channel in the UK, and said, will you give me a slot? And then he went to uh, Red Bull, 
and he went to Bordex, he went to all of the big event companies and said, do you want a half hour in the UK? Do you want a half hour um, show? I can do it for this much money. And the sponsors coughed up. They got their half hour on TV and I front, it was called Free Sports on 4. And it was like a, a TV presenting university for me. I did that and then I got like a teen channel for Ted Turner. He had Cartoon Network and he had CNN and he created CNX, which was supposedly for teens in the middle and it had a lot of kind of adult swim, anime, like gaming stuff, bit of action sports. But I was just learning the ropes. I got I got my 10,000 hours. I got my 10,000 hours in MCing, doing skate and BMX contests in the summer and snowboard contests mm, in the so winter. And then I started getting the same in TV in those early two thousand. Were you still following snow competitions and yeah. that sort of thing? Yeah, I was still doing that. My first TV job came in two thousand and one, and I I was just getting out of white lines then. But I kept the MCing and the TV going side by side. So, what's the TV show? Were you in the studio or were you out? No, we were out at events. So right. sometimes I could double dip so and were, MC something and. Yeah do the tv presenting on stuff because there were there wasn't much money there was a little bit but i started to knock the corners off and it takes so long like i remember vividly salt lake city 2002 the guy who commentated for the bbc that year was dreadful the only trick he called right or the only trick he got almost right was um who's sean's coach now jj um, I can't remember. Believe he used I to ride for ride. Yeah, what yeah. The fuck's his last I can't name? believe JJ. it. Oh, this is embarrassing. <laughs> fuck. Um, well, Thomas. JJ, JJ Thomas. Thomas. JJ Thomas had that insane switch McTwist at the end of his run, and he called it a McTwist. Like he hadn't realised that that was switch. So I was so upset about that. But now looking back at it, if I'd have taken that job, I didn't know how to translate action sports to mainstream audiences i was still so immersed in the sports at a core level mm. that i couldn't get my head around how someone outside the sports viewed them yeah but that time spent in tv like getting my head around how people perspe- perceive the sports from the outside really helped me so that when i finally got the call in 2006 from the bbc to do the turin olympics had an idea of how to do it so how do you translate because like i hate the word lingo and i'm not fucking using it but snowboard culture has a language of its own like culture it's own lexicon yeah um how did how do you go about translating that for a mainstream audience because i i totally get how people don't understand what fake is and camp is and well think think about the comps that i've been emceeing the arctic challenge Mm. i'm emceeing for the riders yeah. You're in the Arctic Circle. Like, there's no one else there. You basically, it's all in jokes. So, that allows you, you're almost trying to be a stand up comic, but you've got the backstop of the riding if anything's going wrong. Yeah. But if you're at Aaron Style, if you're at the US Open, if you're at an in the city big air event, 90% of the crowd don't know what you're talking about. Mm. So, you've, I've been working out how to entertain those people and keep that crowd at the event for seven or eight years 
So you know, you've got all of these things. You're like, right, similes, like work out ways to explain this. This rider's, like, I, one of the early early ones I always used to use was, and I reused it at Natural Selection because I thought no one's heard this for ages, is like someone's the tiramisu of riding. They've got it all. Sponge fingers, cream, little bit of brandy. Mm-hmm. Like, it's that, it's coming up with things that, that bring snowboarding into everyday life and that people can relate to. Mm-hmm. So I, I've been working on those. So the first time I've been doing that for nearly kind of 98 to longer. I'd probably had 10 years, a decade under my belt when I first got the Olympics. So I knew what I was doing and I smashed that one out of the park. I, mm-hmm. But I did only because I got given one of the best Olympic moments in sport, Jack Abellis trying to smash out that method over Thank the you. last kicker. Someone on my um, podcast, when I asked Biff Smith, they're like, that one? <laughs> but that was, I was commentating. I mean, oh, that's right. like manna from heaven. You're like, holy shit, we wanted drama. So, like, the girl who's coming behind her, the woman behind her is Tanya Frieden. And she was way the fuck behind. 200 metres back. Yeah. But she come, Tanya Frieden comes in, so I was like, Frieden! Did the Braveheart. I was like, Frieden! And she came in and the radio, like the radio played it. It went on all the highlights packages. Everyone played it out. Big moment. And the commentary matched it. And as a commentator, that's your big challenge. When you get handed that moment, can you make the commentary live up to the moment and yeah. I've butchered a few because uh, but uh, at that first test I got it because that um, that Lindsay Jacob Ellis moment like most snowboarders would get what just fucking the context of what happened yeah and um, and because uh, it was interesting too like the coach was like oh no she's trying to stabilise herself and there's no no she wasn't <laughs> <laughs> they're just trying to save her yeah because the, in that situation oh, she, she was 18 she had she, all she knew, she was a snowboarder, a core mm. snowboarder. She'd ridden pipe. She mm. was really. She used to ride US Open pipe. She was handy, but the, like she, she got been, attacked. She would have been crucified by her media, right? So I went after, like having had it launched. That moment launched my career and very nearly killed hers. And it tri- that moment chased her for her entire career and until this Olympics where she fucking won gold right exactly yeah so and she grabbed she didn't method but she grabbed over that last yeah. kicker but I tried for years as like a cool snowboarder to try and get her to talk about that and she she wouldn't even talk to me she wouldn't engage with that moment it was such an incredible weight on her shoulders yeah that she wasn't like I remember in Pyeongchang? Well, I mean, fuck no, us. Sochi. I think it was Sochi fuck trying to get her to talk about it. People said to her. People were capable of saying some fucking horrendous shit. Like, you know, like, it was a li- it was pre-social media. Oh no, Facebook was two thousand and four, wasn't it? Yeah. But yeah, I think she got she got like even really just harangued. like mainstream media promoting it in a certain way. It's like holy fuck! Like, and you're that like, person. Like, like we started off laughing about that, you know. But then you actually think about what actually transpired in the backlash. It's like, man, that's kind of gnarly. Like, you know, yeah, really. Like, but that's that's the stage that every Olympian puts themselves on. Mm. And most of them will stay in their lane. They'll stay in the snowboarding lane and it won't happen. But in that moment that something carries you out of your lane 
and beyond snowboarding and, and into the mainstream. It's either a huge victory or a massive defeat, isn't yeah. it? It's terrifying. Yeah. It, if it's not, because if you asked Zoe or Nico about their journeys, like they have these universally positive experiences. Maybe there's a couple of trolls, mm. but I don't think New Zealand does much of that compared to a lot of countries. I think yeah. it's although New Zealand's got a tall poppy syndrome, so there are people here that yeah, but yeah. I mean, I do a little bit of media training with the snow sports kids, and mm. a lot, very few of them. When I asked them if any of them had been trolled, no one put their mm. hands up because it was um, the New Zealand crew that went to Sochi got a bit of a media backlash. Yeah, and that, and that's it. That's your learning experience, isn't yeah. it? And uh, I suppose yeah, that when it steps out like that, it's really scary. Yeah. when that stuff happens i did it on a lesser scale but did it with commentary when uh we commentated on jenny jones at that same games 2014 in sochi jenny jones came third got britain's first medal on snow uh if you don't count alan baxter who the swiss and the austrians got banned because he'd taken some vicks the night before oh my god um but yeah <laughs> Yeah. long story long they um i had amy fuller in the box and she'd never really commentated on that scale before and she shrieked when anagasa fell over and we got absolutely butchered in a moment that should have belonged to jenny it was a slow sports week and we filled up column inches and it's a I, horrible were, horrible were they feeling. All having a crack at your mate because she was shrieking for someone not having a crack at us like our really? pictures on there, like well, they were in the commentary box, and then they start regurgitating all of the things that you say, taking them out of context. You're like, so, I can feel my pulse in my stomach. Hang on a minute. Tim's like, Are so, you sure that's your pulse? What's the story there? Like, so Amy Fuller, sh- like she shrieked because Anagasa fell out. Yeah. So Anagasa was the last rider to drop. Yeah. And if she doesn't score, Jenny Jones gets the bronze. Yeah. And Anna, Anna bailed. She didn't go down really hard. It wasn't a yeah. slam. But, like, first of all, even when you're commentating for a national broadcaster, you're not allowed to be partisan. My role as the lead commentator is to be even-handed with everything. Mm. So, Amy, maybe there's a little bit of um, a grey area there. She's a fellow athlete, Mm. and she she can cross that line. But me, I've got to be completely neutral. You've got to be, you can't show any bias towards anyone. So as soon as you, like when she shrieks when someone falls over, the traditional kind of BBC viewer is outraged by this kind of behavior. So outraged because she's cheering on someone else? or She's cheered someone falling. That scene is very unsporting. Right. So, yeah, and you just get lionized for being hysterical and like being unsporting but i learned such a valuable lesson i was my in my mind you keep your head down you do a good job you advance you you gain recognition and you work your way up it was a slow news week that led the sports headlines for three or four days they just kept chewing it over and over and over nothing else happened okay she was fine yeah she yeah she's doing really well now but the the fallout of that, I had no work booked for that year. Two weeks in, I was fully booked for that year. Fucking hell. Any press, like, as much as I hate to admit it, any press is good press. Yeah. And it was a real wake-up call. And I'd, I'd never do anything like that. But I was like, oh, my God, that's how you, if you want to play this game, that's how it works. Yeah. It doesn't matter how you get your name out there. You just do something. Yeah. It's sad, but unfortunately true fact. Yeah. 
fuck. <laughs> Olympics seems to be a bit of a mainstay in snowboarding culture these days. Um, it had a bit of a rocky start. Um, what do you make of the Olympics and snowboard culture? Billion dollar question, isn't it? Mm. I'm a hypocrite if I bag them too much. My career's been made on them, as I've just mm. explained. And as a spectacle, I absolutely love it. But it's come at a giant cost, I think. Mm. Independent snowboard culture has been diminished massively by it. Think of all the the amazing individual events that we used to have, the Burton Opens. Uh, all those Japan Opens and stuff. The Battle, the Arctic Challenge, yeah, yeah the Toyota Big Airs. Yes. Yeah, there's yeah. O'Neill Evolution. The New Zealand Open. New Zealand Open yeah. or High Fives, whatever. All of these events are gone. Yeah. Because now brands don't need to immerse themselves in core snowboarding culture. They can wait and for six months... Every four years, they can just invest in those six months. They'll, there was a, I did some digging on this. Uh, the previous, the medalists from the previous games will take 90% of the sponsorship money going into the next games. So we have this really unevenly weighted financial injection into the sport. Where that used to happen across the continents and across the riders and across the events. More riders got paid previously <clears throat> on the on the other Exactly. Thing. The money would trickle down to loads of different riders in different places. And we created this multi layered, really deep, rich culture of snowboarding. Now we have this pyramid that's all just pointing at the Olympics every four years. Mm. And it's you, the only people funding snowboarding outside those Olympics are the national federations. So your only route to a professional snowboard career is through those federations. So you've got to be a gymnast. And with you've, you take someone like Mitch da Mitch Davin, for example, mm. super talented snowboarder. Mm. He could go on like Mitch or Carlos, for example. They've stepped out of the snow sports thing. They could go and and ride at natural selection but the chances of making it there without industry support like you've got to have deep pockets to film some video parts fund those winter seasons and apply yourself to that and it's a huge gamble yeah Where huge huge gamble yeah so yeah it's it's and, and that that's what i lament so the olympics is so is a like, really sharp lens on one aspect of snowboarding, but all of the money is being put makes in there. like a worldwide champion out of a couple of people. Because, yep. I mean, I remember very famously um, in the 98 Nagano Olympics, the best pipe rider in the world, Terry Harkinson, boycotted it, which was a huge deal. And as a fan of Terry, I was like, oh, fuck you, I'm backing what Terry is saying. And then when AJ come on and told his qualification story and it's like oh fuck Terrier was right like how were you paying attention to that at that time yeah but I didn't understand anything it's only since I've started working at the Olympics that you get a look behind the curtain at what's going on and I mentioned like all of those aspects like the amount of funding that goes into it with the sponsorship and the TV rights deals but as Terrier's point there are environmental crimes that's one of his big standpoints. He says that the IOC are corrupt, and we know that with the bids that we've seen. Mm. Like the, 
like we've had two countries in a row that have very limit I get that you're introducing winter sport to countries like Beijing but like you look at what they've got to do the way they've got to destroy certain areas to create downhill runs or and mm. yeah you've got I suppose Jonkiao like the freestyle area is huge secret garden is massive but like you look at any of the olympics and they will the development that goes on the property developing deals that go down in behind the scenes are pretty chunky there's, there's so, a lot of money being made there and there's a lot of controversy over sochi wasn't there and but then where do you start with that i mean, I mean sochi you could argue that under the cover of the Olympics, Putin was able to move 40,000 of his best troops to Crimea into yeah. the border of Crimea yeah. under cover of the games to then invade and yeah. take the Crimea Peninsula. But then on the other hand, it's an incredible area. Like The mountains in Rosakuta are just out of this world, good for free riding. Mm. And... He saw how much money was draining out of Russia going to Korshaval and Zermatt and all of the big shishi European resorts. He was like, we can have that here. Mm. But I spoke to like the Russian equivalent of Vodafone. They're called Megaphone, the sponsorship director there. I went the year before the Games and interviewed one of the deputy prime ministers. And he was one of the most evil men I've ever come into contact with. Really? His eyes were just black. Like You could tell that he'd... There was no question in my mind that he'd been sent down to do this press junket as a punishment and he'd probably killed men with his bare hands. He was looking at me like he was so bored of me and he'd like nothing more than to shoot me in the face <laughs> while we're talking through a translator. It was horrific. But he, the, the sponsorship director for Megaphone, the, one of the people paying said, yeah, we're in for 50 million on the books we're in for another 50 million off the books. Fucking hell. Yeah. And he was like, that cost, allegedly it cost 7.2 million on the books. So God knows what it cost off it. I watched a lift fall. So we had two sister hotels. I was in one uh, and a load of the other crew were in the one over the road. And I'd go in and meet them to before we headed up to the venues i walked over there one day and there's a load of journalists in the bar at 8 30 in the morning like with whiskies and the lift is stuck between the ground floor and the basement and it's just fallen from the second floor oh my God. halfway down through the lobby and everyone's just got out and started drinking fucking hell it's wild and this was during the olympics yep Fuck. they just built and they got an enormous gondola and you'd go up it and I'd interviewed the guy the year before. They'd put in 16... It's, it must be 16 metre. They were 16 metre long steel rods into this ground because it was just dirt. There wasn't any bedrock to drill into to hold up one of the pylons. And I went up it one time and you could feel the gondola correcting itself every 20 or 30 metres. And you're like, this pylon's twisted. I couldn't get back in that thing. Fucking you're like, hell. this thing's going to derail. <laughs> yeah. It never has, it but... <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> Holy shit. It was man. wild. And I yeah, to come back to your question, the Olympics have a place, but it's really important that as snowboarders and as an industry, we don't let it become the be all and end all. Yeah. And I'm really it's why I have so much faith in natural selection 
and what Travis and Liam and Cersei are doing there because they're show they are showcasing. You know they got nominated for an Emmy last week oh, for the Jackson Hole show and what they've done. Wow. That kind of promotion when people at at the Emmys see snowboarding showcased like that it's going to wake people up again and I'm, I mean there's the chance there I think there's a there's an opportunity for natural selection with a sponsorship model a competition licensing model maybe pay-per-view whatever it is to create something really really rad so I liked how they um, was natural selection how like Burton was the main hard good sponsor but they also allowed all these other core brands to be a part of it too. Like you had LibTech and Capita and Volcom and, and it's like Beyond it's, it's Medals. Beyond Medals. We're in there. And like KB and Ryan and Tor. So they've done their homework and done it right. Like yeah. being able to include all of that stuff. That still. industry alliance is key. Yeah. And it's probably need it now more than ever, right? Exactly. Brands need support because there's so much white noise out there. Having just having somewhere that we can all meet mm. as snowboarders. I remember 2021, the Jackson event. It was the first time in a decade. There were so many people, snowboarding mates, came out of the woodwork and wanted to talk about snowboarding again. Yeah. Like, they'd been lost with the Olympics. They'd given up on it. They weren't that. They, well, did, they just it didn't do it for them anymore. They only, couldn't relate to it. The only reason I've watched the Olympics was because of Zoe and Carlos and Tiana. Because I know a couple of people in it. Otherwise, it's, I wouldn't. But yeah. then perhaps I'm part of the problem by watching it. Snowboarding is like, the most watched of the FIS's sports. Yeah. And so, I mean, it's a good example. Like, they need us more than we need them. Yep. And we had a, we had a whole industry going that was sorting riders out better. Well, I had, I had the, I, I wrote a lot of articles about this, and uh, one of the other editors of White Lines, Matt Barr, wrote a brilliant series for Transworld called "Shaking Hands with the Devil," and it was about snowboarding's relationship with the Olympics and how it was panning out. And I kind of picked up the mantle, and I, I wrote a couple of articles about how do we work with the FIS because it was very obvious that when Sean White pulled. Aaron, when Sean White bought Aaron Style and pulled it out of the TTR, the TTR collapsed. There wasn't a coherent... We we were so close to having it. We had X Games, we had Jew Tour, we had a lot of the independent European events, we had the Burton Opens, and we had Aaron Style. And it was like a house of cards. When Sean pulled Aaron Style out, the rest of the events fell down. Wow, why did he pull it out? Was it just his own... That, that's a him question, I'm guessing. But, yeah. yeah, I've got some ideas, but nothing yeah. that I'm going to share publicly. Yeah. But there's... And I, it's really hard, but I I think we got really close to having the a snowboarder-run tour there. Mm. But when it became obvious that FIS were going to run it, for me, it's about, okay, how do we make this work? And there are people, no matter, a lot of old school people will bag fists, but there are actually a couple of really good people in there mm. working hard, and they've got same sensibilities as you and me. They love yeah. snowboarding, they're down for it, and they work long, long so hours. I think that's what Danny Meyer was saying in his interview, like, when, in the Terry boycott time, it was totally justified. But now he's saying enough of the right people have moved over to fists that it's... Yep. You've got good judges, you've got amazing course builders, all the top riders are there, and Robbie Morese, 
the guy who's running snowboarding for Fiss is a good dude who's down for snowboarding. Mm. And I've, I've said this before, but in my mind, it was a case of, look, everyone's here. We need the industry to join and come and support this. But I mean, the industry have got like what if you're a brand manager, why are you going to go and sponsor a Fiss event? Because none, no one who's buying a snowboard is watching those events. That is mm. the sad but truth. There's, there's no, you know, natural selection is the first event now in a long time where that's people who are buying snowboards yet are watching yeah. that. So Definitely. No, I haven't watched contests in a long time until recently. And that's where, because you, know. you, you used to go to a comp and there would be a whole scene there. It'd be mm. photographers, filmers, all the riders, hangers on. There'd be a brand sound, managers. Sound system. Yeah. PA, full party. There'd be music. Yeah. Like that whole crew would be there. Now you go and it's a coach and some physios and the riders, maybe a DJ, the MC, Henry Jackson, <laughs> Perma fixture at a lot of the events. But yeah, that, that, Rich culture has disappeared to a degree. Fuck, do you reckon we can get it back? I hope so. I th- I, I, you know what? I I watch things like Mini Pipe World Champs. Yeah. I watch things like the Rat Race, Peace Park. All of these events are still there, but they're where they used to be on a national or a continental level with the Arctic Challenge, the Battle, the Opens. Now they're on a super local level. Down here, we've got uh, Mini Pipe World Championships. Mm. We've got, what's the bank style? So you got the, you've got a few of them. you got the TC Bank Slalom. Yep. you got the Quest LibTech Bank Slalom in Coronet and the Mountain Hut Cheapskates Bank Slalom in Canterbury. Yeah. And, and that's where it's at. Go to any of those and you'll find so much passion for mm. snowboarding still. Like, how good was that Mini Pipe Worlds last year at Cadrona? Like, hey, Dogger, thanks for organising that. Mad Dog, you yeah. legend. Um, Best prizes. And, and uh, I mean, that was just a classic day. That's, that's what snowboarding is for mm. 99% but of people. A rare, day on the hill, smashing around with your friends, laughing and how buzzing. How was that day, though? Like, it was perfect weather. You had four generations of riders there. Easy four generations. Yeah. Um, no one... <laughs> Only one kid was taking himself seriously. Apparently, through the dummy, when Dogger said, "I'm not going to reward anything over a nine. <laughs> and uh, we'll leave that person's name out. The <laughs> um, but like, it was so cool to see. Like, oh man, there is still a community here. You just need to search for it a bit. And I mean, it's such a great day. And then Guy Elty and yourself were on the mic, and that was kind of funny. And Man. Ollie Burke and Rion was slow playing, and it was a fucking great day, man. And that's it. And that it exists. Every year. So I go. I I'm lucky enough to still get to travel, and you go anywhere, and you'll mm. still find that snowboarding is alive and well mm. for a lot of people. And it it may go through a little downturn, but I honestly, having watched it in skateboarding, in BMXing, in snowboarding now. It's a good thing. Mm. Like it's it's like a it's like a bushfire. You're clearing out all of that dead wood that's hanging around and feeding off the industry. Mm. And when it strips back, you get left with the people who are deeply passionate mm. and care about the sport. Mm. And it's not a bad thing. And if, by the way, um, a side note: if you're in New Zealand for the winter and you don't go to the World Mini Pipe Champs, you're fucking blowing it. <laughs> 
Just saying. Public service announcement. Public service announcement. Courtesy of Fat Tony. Yeah, otherwise you'd be there or be a fucking kook. <laughs> Just uh, uh, if you're listening to this as well and you're wondering why Tony's called Fat Tony, he's not actually fat either, which is... <laughs> well, believe me, I didn't choose that name. Um, really? No, no. It that... sounds like the first one you would have picked up. Oh, yeah, totally, yeah. No, I wanted a happy name like Bulldozer. Like, <laughs> no, that came from a mafia party in the year 2000 at uh, Corona Rentals Mafia ah. Party. And so I went in a waistcoat and a suit and a penciled moustache and like, you know. Did I keep? Fat Tony. Well, I walked in and some one of the rental guys was like, oh, Fat Tony's here. And everyone lost his shit laughing. And then fucking, you know something's here to stay when fucking five years, six years down the line, people that weren't even related to that crew were calling you up. <laughs> 22 years later here I am as Fat Tony yeah I didn't choose it (laughs) not Fat Fat Tony so on your on your trips around the circuit did you um, bump into Danny Kiwi Meyer because he was a quite a prominent ISF judge for a while there yeah and TTR Mm. I mean anyone you've had him on the show anyone Mm. who meets Kiwi knows that he's an absolute such an intelligent man like he I, I think Danny doesn't get enough credit. He did so much for the industry, and he kind of made with Manor Media his his day job, if you like. He was very very smart, and he understood like big business, like big media, and he really behind the scenes he helped shape a lot of snowboarding through that ISF TTR era. Mm. And it did it did a lot of work, kind of. If you think back, Sean White, Travis Rice, heyday, early two thousands, mm. like getting rid of boot grabs and body grabs, like yeah. that was all Danny's work. He he really started like building the modern judging mold that we see today. Yeah, and it's interesting what you said earlier on about Danny kind of saying that we need to embrace fists because. He was one of the driving forces behind ISF and mm. then TTR. And I, I tried to get to the bottom of what happened there for a long time and was was really getting quite political about it. And I'm sorry if this gets boring or ends up down a rabbit hole, but it's a funny there is a funny story to it because I lived in we moved I lived in New Zealand two thousand and seven to two thousand and sixteen. And then New Year's Eve 2016, moved back to Switzerland. I got offered a job for Red Bull TV, a long-term contract. So I moved back and went to Verbier um, to go and... Because I knew a few people up there. And we tried the kids in the local school. It was a disaster for a lot of reasons. Another very funny but long story. So we ended up, after a year, putting them in trying to get them into the only other option was an international school. So I did some deals for marketing and profile and stuff, tried to prey on my um, D-list fame and ended up uh, getting the kids a deal in this insanely expensive international school. And on the first day, the head of the Parent Teacher Association came up to me. He's like, hey, my name is Hanno and I am... uh, uh, I know the rhythm of your life because I too have followed the FIS events calendar. And he knew that I worked for the BBC and he was, I was like, oh, okay, what are you doing? He's like, I was uh, in charge of freestyle skiing for a long time. I was like, oh, no way. And then he said, and then um, at one point, the head of the FIS, Gianfranco Caspar, asked me to, uh, he knew that I had taken freestyle skiing to the Olympics. He asked me to take snowboarding to the Olympics and my jaw hit the floor. I was like, I've been looking 
for you. Like, I've been looking for this faceless person who basically put his arm around snowboarding and carried it into the Olympics. So I was like, you and I need to have a, ha- a chat, Hanno. Do you, would you be up for a cup of coffee and an interview? And he's like, yeah, of course. And it was absolutely fascinating because I, like every other snowboarder, had this vision of a kind of a, a, a Bond villain-esque type figure mm. running fist snowboarding from behind the scenes and ignoring snowboard culture. Hanno's answers, like he said, he said, he was like, I, I accuse the FIS of not caring about snowboard culture. And he said, you're living in a dream world. He said, get over yourself. He said, this is the reality of competition. Like a culture can't survive when snow, when elite competi- elite level competition reaches its peak. The athletes, coaches, federations will eventually drive it to a point where it's not about culture. It's about purely about physical performance. And he said, if you want to go out and do powder turns, go and do that. He said, but get over yourself. There are people who want to compete and want to compete in this way. And that's where it's going. And it, I, I had to take that on board. Like mm. it, People will always do that. And that had happened whether you're an FIS contest or an ISF or TTR contest. And then he, he popped my bubble completely mm. by saying that there wasn't a single person who'd run the ISF who hadn't tried to sell it to the FIS. Right. And that was, to me, all of the moral high ground that snowboarders might have taken was jettisoned at that point, that ultimately people just saw the value in it and had tried to sell it. Yeah. Do you think maybe they're all like, well, fuck, it's here anyway? You know? Maybe, maybe. But then equally, there, there are a lot of people, like you look at Reto Lamb, who, like that legendary Euro pro, who for a long time tried to battle with TTR. He worked really hard. There were a lot of really passionate people there, but at one point it just, yeah, it gets too much. And and fists are just so big. And ultimately that battle came down to the IOC. We come Mm. all the way back full circle to the International Olympic Committee. They said, we're not dealing with another governing body. We'll deal with fists. Yeah. So no no matter how organised the ISF or TTR were going to be, they were never going to get Olympic sanctioning. And that was the nail in the coffin. Yeah. Whoa. I mean, that's got to be fucking crazy to meet the person that has been this mythical figure. It was. It was really, really wild. Holy fuck. It was really... I'll send you a link to the article that Mm. I wrote with him as well. Like... Like you here, like you, you sort of mentioned, like oh, you know, go do powder turns, but that's you know, like people are like. I'd like to think, and this could very well be me being naive, that yeah, that Olympic thing, it's it's happening, it's going to happen, but there's still going to be enough people out there that will do a backside one eighty off a roller or enjoy a powder turn or kick a method out that will still keep it. Like that's not dying that's or going away anywhere. And is this it? is this is like, no, this is personal choice. Yeah. But we we have to have natural selection or something similar so that we can see that side of the sport that we rare. don't have to. That kids don't just see. It's like it's like exactly the same as skateboarding at the Olympics. Mm. If you watch like street skating at the Olympics, it's 
they just got nothing to do with the way most kids are going to ride street. Yeah, and like it's like fucking watch that, but then go watch an anti-hero video. Yeah, you know, or go um, watch GT. Yeah, and it's it's a different sport, and that's the way most people experience snowboarding. What yeah. you see up car, like how many twenty one sixties do you see up cardies in a winter? Uh, how uh, many fourteens do you see? Up? Like most people are not snowboarding like that, and I think so, the so that simple act of almost stunt boarding. You got what we do snowboarding, and then stunt boarding. Yeah. it's really scary unless they change up how people are well it's exactly it's exactly the same as skiing aerials freestyle skiing moguls aerials ski ballet and what's the other one there's another one in there but all of those elements are just a weird oddity Mm. of skiing now yeah and that's probably what bigger slope style and pipe are going to become in the next 20 years yeah. The only thing sustaining those will be the Olympics mm. and snowboarding will come back. I think the big challenge facing natural selection is creating a layer underneath it, like a qualifying layer that yeah. represents resort snowboarding. So yeah. you don't so you've got this dream tour operating at Jackson Baldface, maybe a European or a Japanese venue in Alaska, yeah. and then underneath you've got a recipe, a format that you can roll out on any piece. Because how rad it would be? Because they're after a good start with this three location tour, and it's a different thing. Imagine if it was like they put in, like, say, a New Zealand location, Japan, like, yada yada yada, and like surfing, like a couple of carded locals were able to jump in and compete against these best people. Well, I, I had an idea. I'll have to tell them about it before this comes out, but. I had a thought, like, what if you ran a natural selection qualifier in New Zealand in September where you can pay to enter? So any pro can come down. Because they do anyway. Exactly. And you run run a natural selection qualifier. Yeah. And and it takes in, you build some kind of elements that you can work with it. But, like, they could do that. And, like, look at the Freeride World Tour for... I think they're coming up on a decade now. No, it's not. It's probably eight years. They're coming up on eight years without a title sponsor. So they've had to completely remodel how they... They used to sell the TV show and have a title sponsor. They were rolling in in money. They they were able to take it to Alaska. Now, that tour has to run with the venues, the host resorts, pay for a large chunk of the infrastructure... And then licenses that they're selling to a huge number of competitors are see the the funding trickle up, so it's self-sustaining by its own interest. But right. there's people events are trying to find different funding models, and if you stuck with the old school sponsorship model, that's why they've all fallen away. Yeah. Like that doesn't work anymore. And the WSL are only functioning because they've got a benefactor, and at the moment, natural selection do. But at some point. They've got to build a foundation that's going to allow them to to function on their own that without any so support. Because like we used to have like the World Heli Challenge down here. Like there's people Harrow. that know how that shit works that are around still. You know, it's Travis. It's totally doable. Oh my god! And it's the terrain down here yeah. is out of control. Yeah. Like he knows. He's been and fucking done. It. Well, Travis did the Heli Challenge back in '09. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He knows. 
you, you know Travis <laughs> not that you'll ever listen to this but that's cool <laughs> um, I went down a rabbit hole there no, sorry but that, that's cool this this whole podcast is a series of fucking rabbit holes <laughs> do you know Tom Kingsnorth uh, Transform, Transform Gloves and now editor of Pleasure Magazine really yep well congratulations Tom I think he's English editor so Pleasure Magazine is now in English so Germany's best mag uh, is now available for English speakers and Tom and I go back a long way he has one of the sharpest wits if you can ever I can't remember what it's called there was a some kind of like meeting app that came out just around Jackson Hole oh. and you could it was like you could all kind of hang out in this space and we were all watching Natural Selection, and Tom's unofficial commentary of Natural Selection is something <laughs> be to behold. Yeah. So I lived with Tom and Mayhoff in the 0506 in the old strip club. Um, <laughs> what was it called? Uh, I was underneath a restaurant called Kaiser Brundle. I really hope that whole building just got burnt to the ground. Um, <laughs> many a night in Scotland Yard with that dude. Well, Tom Kingsnorth. Uh, recently promoted editor's got a question for you. Oh, it's a shame I didn't get to record us. So it's a bit. We got a tight budget here on the Side Hit Podcast. Will we ever see the return? Uh, imagine me in Tom's voice right now, if you will. Will we ever see the return of Satan's Whoppercock? Now I just have to ask, what the fuck is that? <laughs> um, Satan Whoppercock is or was an alter ego I created in the year 2000. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, Matt Barr, guy was writing for The Guardian. He'd gone up in the world from White Lines, scabby little snowboard mag, was writing for The Guardian, and we were all living in Brighton, and they were hosting the uh, World Air Guitar Championships. And he was like... The Guardian have asked me to cover this, so if it's a bag of shit, can you come along and then I'll just, at least I'll have something to write about. And at the time, I think I'd, I was quite into sewing, weirdly, and I really liked making weird outfits, and I made myself this Evil Knievel replica outfit, so I went in that, and like, it was, at the time... It was kind of, there was a lot of grunge, there was a lot of electronic music, but soft and hair metal was so unfashionable. And we went to this night, and there was a bit of thrashing around on the floor. Like, I, there was a band called Bum, uh, what were Bum DM3. They were like a Run DM3 pastiche, but they used the Brighton postcode as to oh. pay it off. But they uh they were there like it was really funny and i ended up winning and i thought oh that was a right laugh what and then we just song were you guitaring to? i did first year i did don't fear the reaper by the blue oyster cult <laughs> but i'd started i developed like oh i can't play the guitar for shit but i i had the machine gun which was kind of get crouched down really live <laughs> and i've got a really long tongue like I can <laughs> lick halfway up my nose, I can get my tongue further down than my chin. So was Kiss one of the songs later on? Then? No, no. Oh. I'd, but I had one, the face drop, which I'd kind of put the guitar up behind my head, have my elbows sticking out, and then I'd kind of fall forwards, look like you're flat on your face, but use your elbows to break your fall. 
and then someone had come out I'd organise someone to come out and kind of James Brown me put the cape round me and carry me off and then I shrug it off come back out <laughs> so I'd won three I'd, times no so I did the first year yeah and then I realised it's like this is going to like this is going to take way more effort to defend this title and I was quite into it I'd had a really good night we'd basically just gone nuts to soft metal which you couldn't find in a bar anyway so the next year I thought right I've got to really step this up so I created Satan Whoppercock sewed these amazing kind of Led Zeppelin flared red pleather pants with spikes on them did a chest plate kind of spinal tap padded with big flaps on it then got an Alice band with two springs on it, took the baubles off the end of these springy things and heated them up and then melted two dildos onto the end of the Alice band. So I had two massive cocks for horns and then big oh red mullet God. wig. And then I sprayed a cricket box red and got a gerb, which is an indoor firework. I went and met this hokey dude in a lay-by on the M40 outside Oxford, bought all these indoor fireworks. So then I stepped out on stage, lit my cock and sprayed fire all over the audience and did ACDC Thunderstruck. Fucking smashed it. Like, at the end of it, they're all chanting. It's like, suck Satan's cock! Suck Satan's cock! I got carried around the whole venue. Like, there were 2,000 people in Concord 2. Everyone's just in raptures. But I'd started that one as soon as I got going, I was like headbanging pretty hard to start with. And one of the dildos broke off the Alice band and started smashing me in the face. And it's like lock, stock and two smoking barrels. And he's like, that was seen as a nice way to go. And I was like, shit, this really hurts. I'm not going to be able to keep doing this. And then all of a sudden it breaks loose and goes into the crowd. So I'm like, oh. And carried on the rest of the gig with one horn. And my brother was filming it. And afterwards, this is, the tradition is, you do the comp, but then afterwards, uh, everyone just goes nuts on stage for two hours and parties to soft metal. My brother's got video footage of uh, Mark... What was his surname? can't remember his... Mark Stevens? The guy who plays Arthur Weasley in the Harry Potter movies was up on stage. And in front of him is this girl with an enormous bosom and she's tit-wanking herself with one of my horns. <laughs> so that was the second year. And then the third year... Yeah, Jeffrey Disastronaut, the guy who runs it, has got booked 93 feet east which is like a 4,000-person club in the East End of London. It's massive. I'm like, holy shit, this is big time. So I start work three months before. Based on Spinal Taps capsules, I built a nine-foot penis with a detachable bell end, rigged up to a foam fire extinguisher out of chicken wire and paper mache. And the shaft would open up, and then I was wearing the bell end on my head, I'd kind of strung it together. I built this thing in the back garden. You can imagine the neighbour's curtains as this giant penis gets built. <laughs> Once I started spraying the bell end, there was no <coughs> mistaking what it was. But I built this giant penis and I cut together Led, Led Zeppelin Whole Lot of Love with Frankie Goes to Hollywood. So I'd, I'd spent 70 quid, hundred like at the time, probably 200 bucks on a foam fire extinguisher and I had no money so I was like I can't test this thing and I just got together with Sean my now wife 
So her initiation into the relationship was controlling the ejaculation on this nine-foot cock. Wow, that's a keeper right there. So I was like, right, I think what you're going to need to do is like a little, like little jab to send out the first load, then give it a good handful, and then wait, and then drain it. So we go out on stage. I do a whole lot of love. And as we start to get to that section, it's like, huh, 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 huh. And I kind of relax, don't do it. And I'm inside the cock shaking it up. Relax, don't do it. And Sean goes, poof. The first, the first load of this foam just goes, poof. And it's a massive ceiling in this venue. And this thing arcs up and hits the ceiling. Sean's like, lean forward. So I lean forward. She goes, poof. The next one loops out into the crowd. <laughs> my mum, my dad, my auntie and, and uncle are out there. My auntie's like, I just got Edward's jism on my face. <laughs> She's like, lean back. So I lean back and she just empties it. And it all dribbles down the front. I smash the cock open. I'm like, and start writhing around, finishing this song in all of the jizz. And I won. In that one, I won. A handmade USA uh, original Fender. And we'd always got these shitty little acoustic guitars. But I did the, like, Joaquin Phoenix Gladiator, like, guitar live, guitar die. And everyone's like, grab! And I put my thumb down. I don't know if you've ever broke, tried to break a handmade Fender. But it was, like, like literally sledgehammering the floor. A concrete floor. The thing, I got it. And it just broke, but then the body starts flying back up at me. I had to duck the body, and then it nearly pulled me over backwards. One guy runs on stage. He's like, you could have fed a family in Africa for a week with that. That's disgusting. I was like, fucking being trolled for... It was... But just after that, the winter after that, I was riding the British champ's pipe in Leda's Alp, and the sun had melted out the middle of the wall, and I got popped out all the way to the flats on my shoulder and I popped my collarbone and I didn't have the surgery to bolt it back down. So basically one side of your head's not attached properly. So I couldn't headbang anymore and I made the decision to drown Satan in a bath of his own spunk. And he, I've said that he might, for my 50th, there's, I wanted, I did the penis, I wanted to have two people sprayed red hiding under a set of bollocks and have them wearing choker collars chained to my waist, sprayed red, and they're just like, clawing at people. So I'd have them like kind of rabid dogs on a chain to my waist. So I might bring him back to answer your question, Tom, but I'm not sure. Fucking hell, ear guitar. Three-time undefeated. Fuck, I remember the first time I... I didn't even know an ear guitar champ thing existed <laughs> until I seen this news bulletin on TV3 about some Kiwi guy that placed really well to Pantera's walk and he was playing bass and then he even had a bass change and people were like oh he's so good you don't even know he's playing guitar I was like well you do know because he hasn't got one in his hands <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't play guitar for shit but that's incredible so, I can well, pretend I, to play I guitar I have a world champion e-guitar player and that's, that's incredible yeah you're in this holy, is esteemed company Tom. holy shit uh, thank you for that question Tom <laughs> and, and we hope all is well with uh, transform and pleasure 
Well, you mentioned her before as a um, very helpful sidekick there, and obviously uh, sealed the deal as the one, Sean Lee. Oh. And <laughs> I just want to talk about her because she actually made well ahead of her time an all-girl shred flick. I can't remember what the fuck it was called, though. Well, they made a couple. They made... Drop uh, Stitch or something. Yep. Yeah. It was, uh, Chunky Net was the production company and they made Drop Stitch and what was the second one? She'll kill me for not knowing that. But yeah, light years ahead of their time. And you look at the rider list that they had in there. Cheryl Mass, Hannah Beeman, Victoria Jellos, Leanne Pelosi, like big, big hitters. Yeah. yeah. And they, they put that together on a shoestring at a time when the industry just didn't want to know. Yeah. The industry were like, no, women riding comps, they don't do film parts. Yeah. And and you look at I look at natural selection now and all the people, all the haters who came out and kind of pushed the women down at those first events in Jackson, um, saying that they it, that is if they can't see it, they can't be it. And you've had so little investment in women's backcountry snowboarding and filming, mm. like it's gonna take a few years for that to get back up to the men's stage. But yeah. they it should have been there. There have been so many attempts over the years, but mm. it is, you look at even the big heads, look at MacDog, look at Standard, look at Absinthe, and it is a thankless task making snowboard films. Mm. Everyone thought, even in the heyday when we were talking about riders making seven figures, like those guys aren't set up for life. I know Brusty and Justin from Absinthe. I've, I've done a lot of filming stuff with Mike mm. Hatchet from Standard. Like, None of those guys are sitting pretty. Like they, everything went back into the films. Yeah, and it's it's a really that's one of the big things. And the rug's been pulled out from under their feet, I think, by social media to a degree. Yeah. yeah. But oh. Sean, what yeah, what Sean was doing back then is like they did it. There was a couple of them: Josie Clyde, Leslie McKenna, and Sean put mm. it together out of the UK at the time which was because it made uh, New Zealand Snowwater there was an article on Sean in the movie then was there? yeah back in like 04 or something yeah yeah that's exactly the right time yeah yeah I mean Sean is still one of the most frothing snowboarders you will ever come across she rode I think she did every day but five or six when she had we've been spent this last winter in larks because any winter where i have olympics paralympics and ski sunday for the bbc it's like a three month three and a half month stint and when when i left there were no guarantees about getting back into new zealand so we all went yeah. and sean rode of probably the 90 days she was there, she probably rode 85 and she had COVID or was isolating with COVID the other five. Uh. She's an absolute frother, like jumping on rails. And it's it's so much fun. I think it's pretty difficult for our kids because mm. like, they've basically got these two parents who just live for snowboarding. Yeah. There's, there's not much room for anything else. Yeah. Well, I remember, I think the first time I've seen her was at the mini pipes and... It's like, oh, that woman's getting a hard time from Ed on the mic. It took me a long time to join the dots. Yeah. I'm like, did he just say that about her? Like, oh, oh, all oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But she's, I mean, I, mm. I met her for the first time in 96. And as I said earlier, tried to backflip off the wall in Dick's nightclub to impress her <laughs> and failed <Damn>. miserably. <laughs> 
and then didn't see her again for another five years and then slowly with the air guitar wooed her <laughs> and we've had we've had a kind of snowboarding's given me so much in my life it's given me my career it's given me most of my best friends and it's thankfully given me my wife mm. and something for us to share together it's yeah. still we'll, we can both go up and just spend it's the most wonderful gift to have that to Great. be able to share that's it well uh, we mentioned absinthe before I'm a big fan of absinthe movies and you spent a bit of time in Haynes with Giggy and the absinthe crew yeah I managed to sell I've had a couple of wins with the BBC selling amazing features but i explained to them that we needed to show them we needed to make a feature about how snowboard films were made so i went up and joined hostneck uh giggy blair habernet and i can't remember i think it might have been victor davier maybe it was john jackson but yeah we went up there and filmed late season i'm watching giggy it was giggy who first explained to me about kind of that alaska apprenticeship that he'd spent seven years up there and it had taken three years to really start cranking shots. Mm. But watching him in his element was just next level. So what absence movie was that came out of that trip? I want to say Future Proof. Right. But it might have been... Future Proof's the one where he overshoots by about 100 feet onto his back, eh? That role? Mm, that is that one. And yeah. so it's not that one. What is it? It's because you had more. Oh fuck! They had a lot. Twelve. Twelve. I think it's twelve. Right. Um, We we did that in two thousand and fifteen. It's an amazing road trip up and down the west coast. Did some stuff with Candide Tovex. Uh, Did some stuff. Did a Tom Burt interview. Did a Jamie Lynn interview that never saw the light of day, and spent eight days up in Haynes with Giggy and Blair. Blair Habernick, this is a mad story. So Blair Habernick, do you know what a moat is? No, No. in mountain terms. No. So in spring, when snow melts off really steep faces, the snow, rather than just slumping down to the bottom, if it's really steep at the top, the snow, all of the snowpack will just peel off the face like an old bit of sellotape and create a crevasse through the top of the slope so it had had a reset of fresh snow and Blair was doing a towing just putting the skids on the top of the mountain and jumping down he jumped down and he punched straight through the top of the snow luckily had his board that he was holding with both arms under his armpits and the tips of the board went on either side of this moat and his legs are just dangling in midair into this moat in between the rock face and the snowpack. So it's horrific. You know that you're just going to get... If you fall in, he's just going to get stuck down there. Yeah. Yeah. So he sat there. The helicopter pulls away straight away. They're like, okay, we've just got to get out of here, assess the situation, and then come back. Then they're like, right, okay, this is how it's going to work. They rope in Hostinek, and he's on the side. And a helicopter builds up a charge when it's not earthed. When you've got all that gyroscopic force and the you're not earthed by having the helicopter on the ground. 
So they, because of the noise, they can't explain what's going to happen to Blair. But they walk up. Blair's holding his hand out and Justin's hanging out the side. No, it was Tim Tom, the guide. It wasn't Justin. Tim Tom, the guide there. And he slaps Blair's hand, which earths the helicopter. So Blair gets a big electric shock. And then straight away, Tim Tom grabs Blair's hand and they yank him out. And then they fly back out of there. Fucking hell. Nuts. Yeah. But at the same time, you've got, I think it was called Six Pack the Run. I watched Giggy do this beautiful, like dropping in, bit spiny, but he did a spine transfer front side. Like, it was like a bit like an alley-oop. Landed on his toe edge and then fired down, but he dropped, he'd gone a bit bigger than he wanted to, so he'd fired down. And rather than being on top of this cliff that he wanted to drop, he was coming at it from the side on his toe edge and he hit it, and it's in the movie in the end credits. He hits it, and I reckon he goes 40 metres off it. Fucking because hell. instead of sucking it up and coming off the nose and dropping straight down, he actually gets pop off the side of it. And he stretches out a method. Even though he knows he's going monstrously big, he stretches out a method, but then he kind of sketches the landing so it didn't make the full part. Fucking but it's, it's on a par with that fucking crazy massive overshoot that you were talking about in future proof yeah right it was it was so wild and but getting to i've seen giggy a little bit but getting to spend a lot more time with him in that session was really revealing because to me he epitomized the pablo picasso's idea about creativity and artists that the key to remaining creative that we're all born artists the key is protecting that creativity as we become adults and Giggy was almost childlike it still is he's got wonderful innocence to him mm. and that was that was really clear there I mean him and Mueller were always my favourites to watch in the Absence movies and uh, and then Giggy's um, Vulcan movie they did 9191 still one of my favourites now like everything about that movie well you mm. It's that magical ingredient, isn't it? Spontaneity. Mm. Giggy's got the ability, like Travis, to make it up on the fly. Yeah. I watched... There's a really good... On the Free Ride World Tour, they did these things called the Quattro Performance Check when Audi was sponsoring it. And when Travis won in Hakuba, go and look this one up. It's an Audi Performance Check. And he, took, he dissects this run, and it is unbelievable. The amount of detail that he's taken in about a face that he's only visually inspected. And there's one line in it. He comes up and he's just like, yeah, I could see uh, I was lining up for the backside 720. But the shadow line I'd seen that I thought was a lip was actually just a roll and it was light. It wasn't actually a wind lip. So in that last two meters here before I took off, I had to adjust the, the axis of my rotation and cork it a lot more to make sure it came round. Wow, I mean, that's like, what separates them from us. us. Like, <laughs> it was amazing, you know. and that's, that's what I saw with Giggy, and that's what Travis is so good at articulating as well. Yeah. It's br- Go and watch that. It's, really, it's a brilliant glimpse inside the mind of one of the world's best riders. Yeah, because that's, I mean, it's crazy enough to they like, in Alaska, and have to go off memory, you know, to the left of the rock, to the left of the rock, oh, fuck, what rock. And and, well, what Tom Burke describes as the bowling ball. Yeah. Every single feature there is rolling out of sight. There's nothing con- concave. 
So you're on a concave hill. You can see everything stretching out in front of you. There, everything just rolls out of sight. Those mm. huge volumes of snow mean that everything just rolls over blind. You have to know exactly where you are. Mm. To, to be able to ride with the confidence that Travis does is just... That's it's otherworldly. Yeah. yeah. He's an alien. Um, you mentioned one of my all-time favorite riders before. Um, you sat down and interviewed Jamie Lynn. Didn't just sit down and interview him. No? He invited us, me and Zoid, the cameraman I've worked with forever. He invited us up to his, I call it a compound, big bit of land with a massive barn on it. And it was one of the best days I've ever had. Yeah? It was, it was late spring, early summer, so no riding. We just went up there, got up to the gate, and it just says, trespassers will be shot. Like and it's un- double underlined, so you're like, holy shit! Jamie came down, and he just, he was. Like, you have people like that that you put on pedestals. I mean, I'm I'm the same way that you are. I've met him at the Arctic Challenge before, but was too starstruck to be able to speak. Mm. I can't even get it out now. Yeah. Um, he was he was truly wonderful, a really really lovely human being, and. As cool as he comes across in Red. every every element, he was the perfect host. Like he made barbecue, like classic American. He loves his guns. Mm. He got out an AK forty seven and a jar of Tannerite, <laughs> which is like some kind of explosive, and he just put that in the bushes. <laughs> gave me an AK forty seven and just like <laughs> <laughs> blowing shit up. It was, it was mental. Mm. absolutely mental and he was um i actually i bought a painting off him uh for sean as well because like us she's a super fan so that hangs uh, in pride of place in the house Brilliant. but he was it's really thoughtful he's had a really rough ride i mean yeah. it's for him to say but some of the stuff he told us one of the best stories he broke his acl because i think he's got the best method in snowboarding yeah he broke his ACL in around 2000 and had it put back together, but it was put back too tight and he lost his method. Damn. He couldn't flex. And then in 2008, he broke it again. They fixed it, but looser, and he got his method back. Fuck. I mean, that almost explains the um, documentation you've seen of him in that era was mainly powder turns and a couple of front threes. Yeah. Yes. I mean... Just, yeah, a genuinely good human. Mm. He spent all of COVID lockdown up at, uh, I think he was, I can't remember, he was up at Baldface, and then he ended up just going out to someone's house and like using that as a base for supplies, but living with his girlfriend next to a lake for like, someone said 140 days. Wow. Pretty wild. And I've got to ask, what does toe-to-toe with Sean White mean? Ooh... Um, I, I mean, we alluded to it earlier on. I definitely, I struggled with Sean for a while. Like, mm. as an athlete, I have nothing but respect for him. But, and th- this is, this actually comes back. This is really interesting. It comes back to Jamie and Terry A and mm. Sean. And a friend of mine, we had a big argument about it. Because I felt like Sean was letting snowboard culture down. Um, my Matt Barr argued with me and said he has no responsibility to the wider world of snowboarding. Like he's just a snowboarder. Mm. But 
we've held our heroes to a higher account like how Jamie contributed with art and music how Terrier's moral standing on the IOC and the FIS helped shape our identity as snowboarders and make us all feel responsible for the sport mm. I felt that Sean wasn't doing that and we we had a big debate about it and a couple of things happened but long and the short of it we did a kind of call and response article in white lines where I sort of agreed to disagree where he said that Sean had no responsibility to look after snowboarding. He was just a great athlete and he should be allowed to enjoy that. And I wrote the opposite, that he'd let snowboarding down. But I didn't pull any punches. And the first line of the article said that Sean was the anal sex of snowboarding. You either love him or you hate him. (laughs) For my troubles, I got a cease and desist letter from Sean White, Inc., um, and they went after my job at the BBC, and I was I was pretty worried at the time. I was like, "Wow, I've bitten off way more than I can chew here. This could be really damaging." Mm. Um, I had my reasons, but and I have to say this in Sean's defence: this was the November before Sochi. All oh, right. Sean went to Sochi in early February of 2014 to try and ride slope and pipe. That's right. He pulled out of slope, and I felt quite vindicated because I was like, he's proved it. He's taken someone's spot, and then he's he's ditched yeah. it at the last minute. So one of those riders who should have been here, Danny Davis, no, Danny Road, I can't remember who was next in line. And then he came fourth in pipe. Yeah. So I finished the commentary, and my next job is to run down into the mix zone and get all the interviews with the medalists. And the producer's like, and the BBC know that I've written this article and they think I'm a moron. They're like, you've jettisoned all your credibility with the main pull of snowboarding at the Olympics. So the producer's like, you've got to get me a Sean White interview. So I'm like, okay, this is going to be interesting. And I'd interviewed him the April before up in with Bud Keane and Kurt Morgan while he was trying to land the triple in the airbag at North Star. Mm. And we'd hung out at that time. And so he, I've interviewed him God, like 20, 30 times. And he always kind of like makes me introduce myself. Maybe I've got a forgettable face. Maybe it's something he does with the media. But we ended up face-to-face in the mix zone. And he had every right to walk past me. But he was the bigger man. And if you watch Sean, he'll often... He'll, move eye contact around he won't look you straight in the eyes while he's talking to you and he talks in these perfect little sound bites he's a machine when you're doing those interviews this one he bore he bored a hole in the back of my head his his glare was filled with fire and he answered my questions and i i had to eat a big piece of shit pie then like he was definitely the bigger man he didn't have to do that Mm. but he did and what I've seen of him under J.J. Thomas, certainly in the last couple of years, he's he's realised what he's got. And I think maybe in his defence, what I didn't understand was how competitive he was. Mm. And also, to a degree, how insecure he was. Mm. But, yeah, he he did some things that really didn't help snowboarding at the time. And there are certain things that I'd stand by. But, yeah, he's he's definitely 
proved himself the bigger man mm. over the last few years. Yeah, I mean, he is arguably the greatest competitive snowboarder. Undoubtedly. Yeah. No, no, I've never seen anyone with a competitive drive like that, yeah. a will to win. Yeah. I mean, look at what he did in Pyeongchang in that pipe. He had no business doing back-to-back 14s. But yeah, fuck. On that wide stance, too. I don't know how his knees are. Oh, my God. And then age 35, still going back for the 14. Yeah. I mean, I'd spoke to Billy Morgan about the quad, and he said by at 26, he could rip a triple 14 in his sleep. It was like mid-range of what he needed to rip to get Mm. that triple cork spin, which is why he knew he could get a quad. He said by 28, it was everything he had to get a triple 14 off the kicker. Like the the explosive power diminishes so quickly in that mm. physical aging. Like Sean is in cryo sleep between games. That's the only way he can make that work. It's it's breathtaking what he's still doing. Yeah, yeah. It'll be interesting to see um, where his next step with snowboarding is or goes. Man. A, a board knows? brand called White Space. Well, that's part of it, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I mean. Like in a, in the era of diversity, like that seems incredibly tone deaf to me. Oh, yeah. We're back to dingo in the Stratton pipe, but maybe yeah. I'm looking too deep into it. But while we're on the subject of pros and travels and whatnot, there's a um, trip to Svalbard and Alaska with Xavier Delarue that needs to be talked about. Two of them. Like I've done some amazing trips with snowboarding. I did a. Siberian Express from Moscow to Novokuznetsk because Putin had um, to get to try and get winter sport cooking in Russia in the early 2000s he'd give out mine permits if the mines built chairlifts so there's a load of tiny ski resorts littered through Siberia that you can go and visit and they've got snow from October to May it's nuts I've been through the Atlas Mountains uh, Never made it into Iran, but tried really, That's really one hard. Of my places I want to go to. Craig Kelly went every year yeah. before his death. It's supposed yeah. to be radical. Yeah. Weirdly, I was doing the Larks Open social this year, and I had a guy who I thought was Louis Vito uh, asking to come in on one of the Instagram lives. So I let him in, and he was in Dizin in Iran, just wow. riding the lift. I was like, no way. We had a long wow. chat about it. But... Those two trips with Xavier Delarue, Ralph Backstrom, and Sam Antamatten were unbelievable. Like, next level, I mean, money can buy elements of them, but the first one, it was part of the Degrees North uh, duo of films that he was making. And the idea was to first work out alternatives to helis for filming and then potentially access. And they'd hit upon the idea of using paramotors, the two-stroke engines with a propeller and a big uh, paraglider. So we they'd already gone. I went up with uh, me and this other guy. You fly into Longyearbyen, which is the second most northerly settlement on Earth um, in Spitsbergen, up in the Svalbard archipelago. So is this... Norway or yes, yeah, so you're if you got the north, you got the north coast of Norway, and then halfway between the North Pole and 
the north coast of Norway, you've got the Svalbard archipelago, and Spitsbergen is the big island there, and it's basically polar bear central. And we left Longyearbyen, where the seed vault, the global seed vault is, and rode seven hours north over an ice cap to this mountain range. Jeremy Jones had already been up there, but they'd found a different zone, and like it was. April 20th to start of May I was there and between March 27th and April 20th the amount of day it's total darkness on March 27th and then it's light 24 hours a day on April the 20th so the the amount of daylight changes by 45 minutes every day holy shit and you line the tents up in a straight line and the toilets are 50 metres away because at that time of year, the polar bears have finished gorging themselves on seal and the coastline, and they're coming up into the mountains to mate. So our guide was was only 27 or 28, a kid from Milton Keynes. Had found, he'd lived in Iceland and then found his way up there. He had a German Mauser, one of the old... Um, what are they called? Like It's got a locking action rifle it's the, it's the most basic rifle you can get yeah. so it'll never freeze up temperature there was between minus 30 and minus 45 mm. and it was light all day and basically we had a trip wire around all of the tents and he said if you're outside and the trip wire gets off hit the snow because i'm shooting whatever's moving it was it was that real and we were climbing up these lines and what what blew my mind up there was that we're seven hours from civilization and then and that's limited civilization you're another hour and a half flight chartered flight or maybe you could get a like a, a heli from any kind of medical attention and zav and sam had at those mountains like nothing you've seen like it's full full exposure like you fall you die turns on a lot of the runs um i just i couldn't get my head around it it was really really difficult to perceive the level of risk that they were dealing with in those situations but we'd go and one of the cameramen guido tore his calf muscles so i went up and filmed a couple of the last runs you'd be climbing up a 50 degree chute with crampons and ice axes roped together and steve the guy's uh, guy would be like polar bear check because a polar bear can climb thousand meters in eight minutes Jesus and they sprint Christ. up hills so you you cling into this rope and he's got his gun out and you're looking for a polar bear running up the hill at you it was ridiculous but i got a ride I, I talked about the importance of the environment to me i got a ride on the paramotor we took off the glacier and flew up in these paramotors and those mountains are the most beautiful mountains i've ever seen you're watching like all of the inlets are frozen then you can see this deep blue of the ocean but there's no evidence of humankind anywhere wow just these giant peaks no roads no pylons that's boats cars uh, nothing you know like very few people would have seen that yeah Yeah, that's pretty incredible total wilderness total wilderness and then we carried on up to alaska the next year and they succeeded. Like, I saw the biggest avalanche I've ever seen up there. I can't, like, I can't tell you how much snow fell off this face. And then 
the snowpack healed itself and those guys two days later were just getting stuck into it again like the the levels of risk and their understanding of the mountain is really humbling yeah they're working on a level that you 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 think you've dedicated your life to something and then you see the way they look at the mountain their understanding of the snow and you're just like i don't belong here yeah right. Or oh, you're re- you're leaning on them so heavily, but up there they actually they were tandem flying the paramotor and then jumping out of the paramotor into faces. Right. So poor man's heli, like a liter and a half of fuel in a two-stroke engine, Fucking getting you off the glacier and into a face. It was mental. Fucking hell. Nuts. Wow. But that was full treatment. Like we were high splitboarding around full Northern Lights every night. And then watching those boys take down some big lines, jumping off a paramotor. It was nuts. And we nearly got stormed in. And I said to one of the guys, well, I can just, I need to catch this flight. I need to get on to the next job. I can just, I'll ride down, back down to the front, and then I can run across. And he was like, well, if the wolves don't get you, the bears will. <laughs> like, Fucking oh, hell. Fuck, okay. <laughs> 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 like, oh, maybe not. Yeah, yeah, fuck. It was, uh, Places like that put a few things in perspective. Exactly. So, as a frequent visitor to New Zealand, well, you're kind of a resident of New Zealand now, aren't you? I am. Fre- I'm, a cit- I'm a citizen. citizen. Yeah, I got Fucking it last hell. year. I should have got some LMPs <laughs> and cookie times. Yeah. Fucking hell. Sorry about that. Oh. No, I'm, I'm legit. And I've been, well, we I first came down in 2002 and we moved. Back, we moved down as soon as my daughter was born in 2006 and then did a quick three-year stint, 15 to 18, back in Europe. But then we moved down to Wanaka in 2018. I'd be keen to get your take on New Zealand snowboard culture as someone that's moved here. Well, we touched on it before, didn't we? That It's snowboarding like skateboarding is one of those pastimes that it isn't just a physical act the culture around it places it so as we said before like french snowboarding has a very distinctive feel as does austrian japanese canadian even north american like you can divide up the states in Mm. north america new zealand has exactly the same thing it's got this wonderful lo-fi diy feel to it like New Zealanders, there's no fuss, there's no primping or preening. Like New Zealanders get out there and do it. Some of the best riders in the world down here, riding under the radar every day. There's some of the most incredible terrain. Conditions are, as we said before, like very Scandinavian. Like you get you'll get great snow, but very often you'll get boilerplate ice or melt freeze. And that builds brilliant riders i truly believe that and i remember the first time we went to ruapehu we were teaching the kids to ski i did that for the first couple of years i'll admit it but we went up ruapehu and i was like what is this place there's no peace bashers because this volcanic rocks just poking through the snow Mm. no one's had any lessons they all ride like they're those blow up men outside car dealerships mm. and everyone like there's three at the end of the day there's three thousand people trying to funnel onto a cat track to get back like i was riding behind the kids with my arms out but like, 
it it hit me. It was like, wow, if you can ride here, you can ride anywhere. Mm. Like, everything else is easy, and that there's there's that feel for me that Kiwis take everything in their stride and just get on with it. They're not. You don't see many Kiwis whinging, and I love that. I absolutely love it. When you, it's, it's kind of funny overseas. You spot the Kiwi. It's like. Five centimeters, pound a day. <laughs> Let's jump on some shit. <laughs> it's unreal, isn't it? I've yeah. definitely, I've had to um, readjust my parameters, but that's that's the joy of snowboarding, and it's it's really different. But the mountains here are so good. I mean, make no bones about it. I managed to get working for the BBC. I got a couple of pieces away, like did skate snow surf in a day down here. Mm. Back in, I, I did that and I did a piece on snow park when the BBC didn't know what to do with me. They were like, we've got this snowboarder and he seems to be able to talk about it really passionately. But they were dragging me around ski races. And I was like, so after the first series, I said to him, well, I've got this cameraman that I use who lives in New Zealand. Can we film some stuff? And they loved it. And they started throwing money at it. So mm. I, I did powder snowboard testing and we used over the top with choppy choppy when steve scott was tail guiding and assisted like training to be a pilot i rang steve and he was like yep we can sort that out Mm. we shot the titles for the show over here we did powder snowboarding like all around orem and what's centaur i i rode some of the best terrain i've ridden anywhere in the world like up on a but if you've got the money alaska is here in New Zealand and waiting for you on the mm. right days I truly believe that there's a reason why Terrier filmed uh, a whole lot of stuff out by Methven exactly mm. the terrain terrain here is second to none you just need a massive budget <laughs> 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 to get high enough yeah yeah well quite often the New Zealand terrain gets judged by the resorts and they are the resorts is a very small reflection of what you can actually access here if you've got the means but look at look at the pedigree of riders that New Zealand's turned out, and I think that it's the same as Scandinavia. It's the same as the east coast of the states. You get the we talked about them earlier: Dilbert, mm. Quentin Robbins, Jake Coyer. You mentioned. Yeah. Um, I mean, fucking Jake grew up riding Coronet, like AJ says. Like that place teaches you how to ride. Yeah. You know. And I forgot. Yeah, AJ Aaron Jameson. Yeah. Dan Fountain. Yeah. I, crew so many crew mm. and i mean will j to be fair w- watching will j ride is one of my favorite things it's so graceful still like you watch will i could watch will throw in back three tail grabs through big bucks and he's still got a really nice back five on him mm. Mm. and then yeah th- yeah the most wonderfully humble man Your that you could ever pro's make. favorite pro yep yeah pretty much and or i mean and then you get into the current generation and it's just wild but then, how good they are but then even before the current generation you got people like christy pryor that made a huge impact it still has like pound for know. pound probably the best like her and Cheryl mass the best rail riders female rail riders ever Mm. I think is a pretty easy claim. Maybe if if you put them in the context of their era, maybe Jana May Jana Mayen mm. has a handle in there as well. But what Christie did, the consistency and the technicality she brought to rails was phenomenal. 
Yeah. I, I had the real the misfortune of meeting Christy the day that she didn't qualify for Pyeongchang when the Dutch co- we were in at the Larks Open and the Dutch coach had the deciding vote and it meant I can't remember who it meant would go to the Olympics but it meant it, Christy couldn't go oh, I was kind of like hi I'm it and she was she was barely holding it together I felt like such a bell end yeah but she's also like yeah that strong rail game but fuck like jumping game as well and a lot of people's favourite method yeah you know absolute killer method yeah. yeah that that generation Steph Zestratton as well yeah like go and watch I did some board testing for white lines with Steph last year and the level he still rides at now oh, he's too funny he's like see me right now oh I've just been taking it easy today oh rad yeah yeah just back seven over the third table like fucking what you know he still goes and hits the big ear jump yeah. yeah. He still, well, he put that two seasons ago, he put out some cheeky little line with a double 10 in it. Yeah. I'm sure. And it's like, it's like I'll just cruise him. He it's did, like, he did <laughs> cab 270 to nose press over that little hip in Cadrona last year. Like some beautiful, really, yeah. really high end finesse snowboarding. Like he's, he's a magical rider who it felt, to me, it felt like he pioneered. The, the the kind of fist pathway at a time when it wasn't that trendy for the riders who are benefiting from it now. Yeah, I, I mean, I didn't really think of that, but there wasn't the pathway. Yeah, he was, he was doing that. Yeah, there was Shelley, there was Steph, and they were doing those world champs mm, and those... Because they kind of alluded... To, Will and Shelley kind of alluded to it into their interviews a little. And Shelley's someone I forget too. She's amazing. Like... Yeah. Ju Bray as well. Ju Bray. Like, Ju, go and ride with Ju and her ball control still yeah, to this day. Good luck keeping up, anyway. Yeah. Like, she still smokes everyone at the bank slalom. And <laughs> and I've, I've said it so many times, and fuck, I don't care, I'm going to say it again. Like, it cannot be understated how much of a pivotal moment she was. We're in that interview in New Zealand Snowwater. Like, it was shown to a whole lot of female shredders, actually, you can ride like this. Yep. You don't have to be just doing turns. And then fucking, like there would be no Zoe Sinnott without Dubray. And that's it. Well, you everyone steps on the shoulders of the people who've come before them, and you look at. I mean, there's. But that's what I think is cool about like people like Zoe and Carlos, and Tian, and they know they're standing on the shoulders of giants. And well, which, they've got brilliant. You you only need to look at their trick selection. And the way they've built all of their tricks, and you can see that they know their snowboard history, mm. like which in turn makes them giants eventually, right? Yeah, you know, yeah, to know to know where everything has come from and to understand. That. I mean, Zoe literally had it happening on her doorstep, though. Yeah, like talking to her, like watching the likes of Seb Toots, McMorris, Spencer O'Brien, Christy Pryor, all of those super pros ride at that. That, that yeah. really, really influential age, like eight through till, what was she, sort of 12, 13. Mm. That's, that's, you've got to have the capacity and the, the passion for it at the same time. It's no good just showing people that, but yeah. she, yeah. yeah. She, it's easy to have R&B fly under the radar. He's probably been one of New Zealand's longest professional Riders. That is insane, isn't it? You know, I can't believe we haven't talked what, about him. He's my age, 42, I think, and he's still still doing it. Peter Pan, 
out there in Meyerhofen, and then like he's when he does his seasons down here like think of what's fascinating with Roly is when you reach 42 there are some giant sacrifices you're making mm. because you can live like a ski bum in your 20s yeah your early 20s by 26 27 that's getting old for most people mm. you've got to start finding some money to make it work to live winter to winter like Roly does you're making some big sacrifices in your forties. Yeah. There are no guarantees. I'm pretty much guarantee he hasn't got a pension fund. Yeah, but he is. If there's anyone out there doing it for the love, is Roly one hundred percent. Yeah, and were you privy to him when I think it was him and Louis Paraka crashed the British champs or something? <laughs> there, I I remember hearing rumours about it. Um, I do. What I do know is that it was at a time when the Brits were. It was basically a festival with a lot of partying and a little bit of snowboarding. <laughs> it's like that old adage about Black Sabbath. They started out as a metal band dabbling in drugs and ended up as a drug band dabbling in metal. Yeah. And the Brits started out as a. Actually, it started out as a party. <laughs> dabbling mm. in snowboarding but it it almost reached a tipping point there i remember early 2000s but those probably what would have stood out actually jamie philp was around who if you're not he was a weird kind of andorran hybrid brit but he was really good and he would have given roly and louis a run for their money i reckon but i mean roly's freestyle smarts back then mm. he was legit like, mm. Roly, you could put Roly in a park anywhere and people would stop and be like, who's that? Yeah. Anywhere. And I mean anywhere. It was yeah. that good. I mean, he became, like, a fixture. Like, I heard heard about him long before I met him, even when I was in Mayoff and that season. Like, Roly this, Roly that. Like, fucking hell, this guy's a... Do you, you see know. that? He put out an Instagram post recently with... It was to do with that North Face promotion about all their jackets. He had a switchback one off a cornice and it is monstrous it's really? massive Fuck. it's well worth revisiting there's a like there's riding that he's put down that like i and i feel this really this is not to take anything away from travis but there are a few riders if you gave them the art of flight treatment i.e the super slow-mo heli to heli camera kind of stuff and acres of time in alaska there's a few riders who could function at that level and if they're given the opportunity, and I truly believe if you'd given Roly all of that money and that time, you could probably have come back with a very respectable section. Because, mm, I mean, he, he did a stint with mates in Alaska, yep. which was their first time. And Yeah, but they were almost filming each other, weren't they? Like yeah, I think they had a film for pretty, a chunk of it, but it was ghetto. Yeah. And, um, but fuck, man, like even just watching his Instagram with his POV lines at Remarks, and like you know like a couple of them like the first few turns like oh this looks awesome I, I would totally enjoy that and then you see the shoot he lines up and you're like oh I wouldn't enjoy that <laughs> like, yeah. holy fuck you're like, and, and you're pinning it now because your slough's going to take you out if yeah. you even hesitate here yeah like yeah. he's he's got some real big mountain smarts he's still got his freestyle game He'll be an interesting conundrum. Like, you can see Roly doing this for another 15, 20 years. Yeah, yeah. Genuinely can. I mean, fuck. Like, while we're talking about 
the current generation that the kids look up to if they're looking up to like JJ and Carlos it's in pretty good hands still right 100 percent. and the the only travesty for carlos things have worked out perfectly and i really really hope that he continues to get the support he deserves i'd he's one rider a couple of years ago i got the chance to when i first got down here actually i got a chance to heli and i ended up getting put in i got bumped out of the group who i was with they're all skiers and they kind of flicked me on and i ended up just in a random load with uh, Marcus Skin and Carlos and I had the best day just dicking around with those two. And I'd seen Carlos, I'd obviously seen Carlos ride slope heaps and was absolutely loved his style. What I saw in the way he was reading fresh terrain visually from one angle from above impressed me so much. I, I genuinely think... With a little bit of time and investment, he'd be a force to be reckoned with on natural selection. Yeah, yeah. Fully would. Yeah. Fully would. No, no two ways about it. And I've, in a couple of conversations, I've mentioned his name, but whether he, he doesn't have the profile or they need to see more footage, I don't know. But I'd, mm. I'd absolutely love to see that. His ruckus movies are fun to watch. They sort of hark back to 90s style videos a little bit. Yeah. They're full skate edits, essentially, yeah. aren't they? Yeah. And then you said it earlier on. JJ's just should be pro on everything. Mm. He's probably one of the world's most underrated riders. I was on, we talked about those Cardi's laps. I was on the chair and he came under me and did like a backside 180 shifty. So kind of doing a switch backside shifty and tail tapped a big vert wall on zero of big bucks kind of cross-courted it and it was inch perfect just got the ding ah he is the form everything and he was he was only about a meter and a half below me so i saw the whole thing in coming up towards me getting the tap and away and i was like who the fuck that dude is so in tune with what he is doing on it's that snowboard. Glorious. It's yeah. utterly glorious. Style. And the fact that he could just drift off and become a builder without anyone knowing is a reality now. It's it's heartbreaking. Yeah. Someone give yeah. that man two hundred thousand dollars and a film crew. Again, like fuck that dude, like he's just Oh, you can see his influences very very easily well watch it and this comes this comes back to what we were saying about kind of snowboard scenes and culture that keeps you locked into it seeing talent like that Mm. just almost drifting ghost-like in the background you're like oh my god there's people out there doing like this with no recognition you know, and, and he's so humble about shit too. Because I've, I've seen JJ come up from when he was Cadronas as a little grom and his parents worked at the ski school r- right through to the ripper he is now. And it's been pretty out of it to, to watch it. I still remember the um, the suitcase here over the fourth table on the Burton Dominant, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then, yeah, fuck. 
um, we sort of alluded to it before, and I also want to go back a little to what we would consider maybe the golden era of snowpark, which was an institution for quite a while with New Zealand snowboarding. It was um, wild, wasn't it? I yeah, mean, I, I was coming down a lot did you during get that to period. Experience that? Well, I was I was traveling down pretty regularly between 2004 and 2007, and then I moved down, obviously, and came down most winters. And I, and that was just wild. The idea that you'd have the world's best riders knocking around in a one lift resort like, on mm. any given day. Mm. Like we we rolled called a lot of the crew who were there, but I remember coming down with British crews, but seeing like you'd have all of the best pipe riders. Travis Rice would be down there regularly. You'd have McMorris. You'd have Seb Toots. I mean, it was if you were a competitive snowboarder from somewhere else, it's a, it would be a humbling experience. Oh, shit, you know, yeah. Like because there was again, there was nowhere to hide. Everyone knew what you were doing and what you were up to. Yeah, it was a gnarly place. Like a gnarly place. A perfect arena. And and it's a fleeting moment. I mean, I mean, I I seem to remember thinking even then, like, oh my god, how are they going to keep this snow line here? Yeah. Like you could you could see the writing on the wall for global warming. Like mm-hmm. the winters, as in just that short period, you could see the struggle for snow was real. Yeah. A lot of winters, but its importance for New Zealand snowboarding, I think cannot be measured i mm. think it's i mean even as a recreational rider it was fucking cool like i shared a chairlift with travis rice there that's fucking crazy right like <laughs> yeah. i remember like being fucking off after the 04 season to canada sunshine village where i was working with 18 year old australians and uh, they just didn't believe my stories. So they're just like, yeah, you're right, you should have lived with Travis Rice. I'm like, fucking just about <laughs> half of Wanaka did, you know. <laughs> like, you know, it's, but that was it. Like, that's fucking... It was, the, it was the epicenter. Like, even... And that's the funny thing. Having... We talked about the perspective that, as a Kiwi or a Brit, you have over lots of different scenes because, mm. fundamentally, you travel. And Snow Park was mecca. Mm. For a lot of people, like you which, had to make that pilgrimage, which turned Wanaka into a very vibrant town for the winters, depending on who you spoke to. Yeah, <laughs> uh, the um, bounces, vibrant that's very diplomatic. The, the, the bounces at Paddy's will have a different story about that, yeah. But, um, but uh, again, it was cool. Like, you'd go in the fish and chip shop, and like, oh, I've got to wait behind Torstone, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, and you know, and, and it, it did take a lot of the myth away from pros because, like, oh, yeah, they fucking well, they're human, and you could, like, you have to be able to. What's fascinating, I always, I always think about it. You've got Malcolm Gladwell's ten thousand hours that you have to have to be excellent at anything. That's the theory. But if you're snowboarding, you've got to get those ten thousand hours, but you've got to get them on good facilities. So, like, Snow Park was key. But most importantly, if you're a really good skater down here, like Zeden, for mm. example, you've got a 14-foot vert ramp, you've got an amazing skate park, you've got all these other skate facilities. So he can get his 10,000 hours and he's got the facilities. What he doesn't have down here is the insane level that he needs mm. to be able to see to chase. Yeah. 
Yeah. With Snow Park, we had that on our doorstep. And for Steph, for Christy, for Jake, for Zoe, for Carlos, for JJ, seeing that mm. day in, day out, knowing that right, these guys are working on double cork 10s, these guys mm. are starting to sniff around 12s, while people are going for 14s. Like, they could see it. They, Zoe knew, from the age of eight, Zoe knew where she had to get to. Yeah. And that, the, that, the impact that Snow Park had in that sense is... It also yeah. made a lot of Priceless. resorts around here step their game. Like, Cadrona had a park and had a reputation for pipes beforehand. And, um, and Remarks was dabbling with things, but then Snow Park came along and both those other resorts like fuck we gotta step our game up and yep. then there was a leapfrog in between the three resorts for a while around the southern lakes because um, it's easy for and it's get. created pound for pound Cardi's Park like if you ignore the lift queues on White Star Cardi's Park is one of the best parks in the world mm, totally like it's as good okay you don't have those huge sprawling runs that you get in Mammoth and Larks mm. but the quality of the jump line Mm. And there's very few jump lines like Big Bucks that run that smoothly. Yeah. Where and you kn- know if you land in the sweet spot, you just like big long turns, you'll land perfectly for the next one. Those That crew is really experienced too. Like Slocum, um, like Matt Slocum, he was running parks in Scandinavia and then Heath and Kevin before him was like heavenly in Area 51. Wow. You know, so... I didn't know that. Yeah, so Kevin... Kevin, who used to run the park um, before Matt took over, was involved with Area 51, and Heath, who's now involved in the higher-up operations at Cadrona, was involved with Heavenly. Yeah. Matt Slocum come along, and he's he was heavily involved with Sweden and Finland parks, but then so was like Russ Duretich and Oscar Schaefer's and all those other dudes that all... There's a lot of experience in that crew. What yeah. I'm trying to say, like they, oh, it's really it's clear, it's clear. Like some of those features you look at, and you've got to think, you go to Mammoth or Larks, they've got huge snowfalls, massive mm. snowmaking facilities. Like those boys are dealing with very often really light snow cover. Mm. What they're able to create out of the volume of snow they've got at their disposal is amazing. Mm. And they've also got the writing talent to back it. Like, all of those dudes <laughs> yeah. are in. Like, you, have you ever followed Matt Slocum down one of his jib runs? Yep. Crazy, eh? Unbelievable. And fucking Jack Spence, like, all of them. Just incredible riders and, as well. Well, you know, the, your park's never... If if the people building it don't ride it, it's not mm, going to work. It's simple a, as that. Um, is there any up-and-coming New Zealand shredders that have caught your eye? I mean, we've been harping on about one all night, so, you know. So many. It was one of the things that really, I got really excited about coming down here. I mean, it's, there is this insane level that's been set, so now everyone knows where they need to get to. Mm. So, you look at Carlos and Tian, arguably, they've made each other better. Two very, in the park and pipe realm, two very different snowboarders though. Carlos, so silky. Tian, technically perfect. Mm. Like if, you, if you freeze Tian on the takeoff of a 16, at the moment of takeoff, so his front legs over the takeoff, his back legs on it, 
his board will be perpendicular to the takeoff and his feet, knees, hips, shoulders, head will all be stacked up perfectly. His timing on takeoffs, I've watched it again and again, is absolutely perfect. He's phenomenally good. Mm. And I mean, you look at, deconstruct some of his rail game and it's only just starting to translate into competition results. I was really excited about watching him at the Olympics. I thought it was going to peak perfectly, but I feel like he got scored wrong on his first on yeah, his run he made. Hundred percent, you know, hundred percent should have been scored better. He was way his technicality on the rails was huge. Yeah. Might have been but slightly lighter on the kickers, do you, but do you think there's a problem? Is that he makes hard snuggling look easy? So like. I mean, yeah. I th- it was th- almost the same set of judges in Larks who put him in second place when he qualified for finals. I mean, he was breathtaking there. He was yeah. unbelievably good. So I don't know if he was scored really light, but they had some weird execution things like that slope style. We we saw it all the way through. There were there were funny scores coming out left, right, and centre, and that video feed wasn't working for them because yeah. they they're under pressure to get scores out. So I don't I don't count too much of that. But I I love watching Tiam ride. Mm. I'll tell you who's brilliant at the moment and the speed at which he's progressed from kind of I remember seeing her. She must have been fifteen when I got down. Cool. Yeah, yeah. And she was kind of. She was. She'd got a back seven, I think, but there were like you could see she was very much a work in progress. And then in two seasons, she's on the World Cup and she is smashing it, and it's really, really strong riding. Like, yeah. kind of frightening. You're like, wow, where's this come? She stepped up so quickly and so impressively. Yeah. The road she's being shown by Zoe mm. is so much more than just an Olympic road. Yeah. And that's the joy of this. Yeah. That's where it's where we're looking good, and I feel like it's harder for the men at the moment. Like you almost need Carlos or Mitch who've stepped away from snow sports to like Carlos is doing well, and he's got mm. as you said, Ruckus is out there. But I kind of I feel like like JJ is like his talents hiding under a bushel internationally. Mm. He can still he can do so much more with it, but. It's there's there's so much talent, and you look a bit further down, likes of Chamber Mazet Brown, Rocco Jameson, AJ's boy. Fucking Rocco, like unbelievable. The apple didn't fall too far from the tree, did it? No, not that at one. all. And, and then technically, like we talked about pipe riding, but Cam Melville Ives, well, like that boy's got, he's a machine. Did mm. he get? I think he got junior world champs. Did he? Yeah. Red. I think he, he got, maybe he got silver in big air. Can't remember. Yeah, but yeah, absolutely. And he's they're fifteen. And Chamber was the same. Chamber had a really good season. Rocco, I think, is just Rocco will be really interesting because Rocco, as you said, like he's got the capacity to go down the film kind of free ride route, and yeah. he's got that he's got that snowboard history, mm. that understanding of origins and tricks and how things fit together he's Mm. he's gonna have the the understanding to build some really lovely stuff i watched carlos do switch backside rodeo melon a couple of seasons ago and it's not there's only i've only seen i think it was kevin backstrom's the only other person i've seen do that since they ride together a lot um carlos it was it's so beautiful 
Well, that's my notes done, so we'll look at wrapping this up. But before we do, do you have any advice for aspiring shredders? Go, um, I'd say go and learn your history. Like, if you enjoy snowboarding, like most people love it, like don't ever force it. Don't do it for anyone else's reasons. Like, find the reasons in you. And I think that comes naturally to most people. But that's, and that's why I say, Go and learn your history. If you really want to enjoy snowboarding, if you really want to enjoy anything, go and work it. Like, go and learn a little bit about it and where it's come from. Snowboarding, as we've discussed for the last however long, has this incredibly rich history. And there's so many different types of people doing so many different types of riding. There's something that will click with you. Go and explore it all. Go and find it. Like, go and explore some of the names that appeal to you maybe some of the names we've mentioned but other people and you can there's so much fun to be had in snowboard history it's so mm. rich oh cool and before we hit our enders do you have any thank yous and shout outs you'd like to give out um well massive shout out to sean my wife uh for being my constant shred partner that is one of the biggest gifts life has ever given me um and the kids too suki and oscar um, I've always been looked after by a few different brands, but Salomon definitely have given me so much love over the years. Um, Volcom, Giro, um, Stance Socks, all much love. And then, yeah, anyone that I may have offended on the mic ever, uh, I don't mean it. Honestly, uh, it just comes out of my mouth. I can't help it. Uh, I apologise profusely. Thank you so much for having me, Tan. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Oh, we'll roll into our stock enders. Um, Favourite rider? Ooh. Now or ever? You know what? Let's go both. I think... Do you know what? For, there's so many, and I've studied so much. I think for what he represents and the fact that I've had the privilege of seeing him ride in the flesh, Terry A. Harkinson at the Arctic Challenge, I stood on the side of the pipe and he was the first guy to build hips into the pipe. Mm. And I stood on the side of the Arctic Challenge pipe for two days and I watched... David Benedek, Kim Christensen, Keir Dillon, Roman DeMarkey, Yoni Malmi, um, I said David Benedek, Guillaume Morissette, um, Daniel Frank, like basically all of the best snowboarders of the early 2000s, trying to get to grips with taking off and doing a 90 degree turn, but landing in a pipe transition. And everyone was trying it, and then Terrier turned up towards the end of the second day and people had built from kind of four foot to six foot to eight foot to ten foot and were starting to blast terrier dropped in went probably 15 16 foot out stretched out this insane method and everyone else had been landing like you'd hear them thumping into the transition terrier had gone half as big again as everyone else and then you just heard he met the transition at the very top and so I've seen good riders. I've seen a lot of very good riders. But to see someone stand out that far 
above everyone else in the context of the 20 best riders in the world. He is, like, a lot of people's goat. Yeah. I think other people have maybe done more since, like, uh, Jamie for style, 100%. I think what Travis has done in Alaska is just ridiculous. It's... And for the sport as a whole, he deserves a huge amount of respect. But Tra- Terrier is the only person I've seen where everyone stops whenever mm-hmm. he drops in. Yeah, Everyone's like, I've got to see this. Uh, the Arctic Challenge in 2002, they'd built a 10-metre quarter pipe at the ski jump in uh, Oslo. The Holman Column ski jump. And it's where Hakey beat the world record backside air. I think he got 9.3 metres. I was on the deck there when Terrier went up to do like a super tweaked nose bone fakie. And he lost his balance at the apex and he did his kind of sprocking cap where he twisted himself, but he'd floated out over the deck. So he's twisted round and he landed disaster. Like front foot in the transition, back foot on the deck. The the board flexes down so that it's touching the deck and then pings him out knowing like intrinsically knowing that the board's going to ping him into this 10 meter transition head first he throws his head over the nose of the board the board pings over the top of him he does a front flip and lands in the middle of the transition and rides away wow so like eight yeah. meter air to fakie to deck out front flip and then ride away he kind of put his hands on his head like he didn't know what had happened. And we just all looked at him like, you're an alien. Instinct just took over, eh? He's just... Another level. Unbelievable. Yeah. So, But right now, I think I'd say, in this moment, Arthur Longo. Yeah. How was that transfer he did at the Jackson Hole? Natural selection. Just giant. Just, just next level. Yeah. But you go back, you look at Arthur's pipe riding from like 2007. He did a teen X Games going up against Louis Vito. And Louis had like four tens. And they were all about head height over the coping. Arthur's like three times overhead floating nines. Go, it's almost worth going to find that. Teen X Games, Arthur Longo, silver medal. I stopped watching X Games after that in protest. I couldn't believe that. <laughs> Favourite mountain? Ooh. I have so many different mountains for so many reasons. I spent three years in Verbier and I felt like I'd just got on the first rung of the ladder in terms of understanding the backcountry there. It was unbelievable. And the altitude means you've got access to some incredible snow quality as well. That would definitely be up there. If I was going with the family, 100% Larks. That place is off the chain. It's so much fun. And I truly believe if you want to experience snowboard culture, from Reto Gertner, the owner of the resort, down through the resort director, Reto Polterra, through Ivan and Luca, all of the park crew, snowboard culture is at the heart of everything they do at, that is a snowboarder's resort yeah i think jar harris works over there he does it does it's it's pure snowboarding it is from the design of the cafes to the way 
everything's built like it's it's all about snowboarding it's wonderful it's it's so rad um i love cardis i really do enjoy it like park I laps mean, at cardis it's, it's a fun playground though, isn't it you know, yeah like. yeah i'd say say those three valdez egg just because i simply because i did five years there and i know it like the back of my hand mm. i love that place i can go and even six days after snow i could go and crack off some good runs nice favorite board i've got a few i've ridden so many over the years but i do love there's a salomon six stick that's took me a long time to work the 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 shape of the six stick now took me a long time to work out it's a twin with a tiny taper but you don't set it back you set it up centered and it's a really stiff stable free riding machine but it will go like I rode I rode one winter in Verbier. I rode Park. I just rode it everywhere. And I rode the Bec de Ross at 45 degrees and I rode the Park. Like there's very few boards that can do that. I've mm. more recently I've gone for volume shift boards and looked at wider stuff. And I do really enjoy wider wider boards now, but that still holds a very special place in my heart. Sweet. Favourite video part? Simple Pleasures introduction with Everlong by the Foo Fighters. Absolutely love that. Like Just hearing that blows my mind. Um, I love JP Walker in Simple Pleasures with Dreaming. I love Ingmar Batman in Stomping Grounds. Yes. uh... I think Subject Harkinson. But there's very few people will know this, but there's um, Jamie Lynn, Mike Ranquit, Boreal section in Project 6. I've seen that. Which I yeah. absolutely yeah. love. Yeah. That, that to me, I destroy... No, I, how, how can I even forget this? The one that I come back to, I, as a free rider, I think it, it's the Prince of video sections it is so far beyond its time you can watch it now and it still stands up the only thing that's annoying is the like the quality of the video part but johan olofsson in tb5 yes with mega death breakfast of champions yeah is like what he's doing there it's madness back sevens on natural takeoffs in a lap the most of that would still Stand up yeah. fully in terms of size, mm. but then I mean, <sighs> but like totally like when they put the fucking stats of that run, yeah, that's three thousand feet, forty-five degrees yeah, in fifteen seconds. Like you're watching it, you're like oh, that's pretty fast, and then the stats coming like oh, that's really fast. But then yeah. what about I've just remembered Roman Demarkey's closer from Vivid, is it or Pop? No, it's Pop, where he goes back five to cab nine in alaska and pretty much jumps over a canyon fucking hell was that the one where he's dressed in the prison shit as well pick it up right no no Uh, that one that's the one where he's kind of got two strippers dangling off him and they're throwing money there's a kind of well of money yeah it's pop i'm pretty sure it's it's joe strummer joe strummer yeah yeah that is and to me that's like that's that so loose but somehow controlled riding yeah. i'm going back to johan i watched him 
the year after TB5, I went and interviewed him in Whistler. And we went riding a couple of days, and I was like, okay, just got to keep up with him. Just got to try and keep up with Is him. Is that even possible? Well, as I found out, it wasn't. <laughs> we did the first run, and he was literally kind of leaning against the rail. And I hadn't been hanging around. My hair was on fire as far as I was concerned, and he was whistling at the bottom of the chair. So the next one, I was like, just keep up, just keep up, just keep Come powering down. I can't remember which run it is. It was somewhere out in Blackcomb. And we come up to this blind roll, and he hasn't even flinched. He just takes off into a huge front, like really slow stalled front one. And I'm like, do it, do it, do it, do it, do it. And I'm like, <laughs> I just come up on my hip, like screeching halt on my heels. And it's a giant mogul field. And he's front one into the middle of the mogul field. I don't know if he'd done, done it every day and knew it inside out. But there could have been a family in the middle of this mogul field for all we know. He's front one out. He puts his nose on the top of a mogul as he lands, sucks it up, pumps through the mogul, cab five, and then he's cleared. Where by the time he lands, he's cleared the whole mogul field. My God. Like 30, 40, yeah. 50 metres down. And I'm still up at the top and I'm just like, fuck that. And that's the stuff you don't see. Like the way a super pro will ride a resort, that's what Arthur Longo's tapped into. And yeah. that's what I felt I used to love when I'd get to do things like that, go and like, I got to hang out in Trissel in Norway with Nico, Mikkel, Freddie Ausbo, Freddie Kalbermatt, and like the Burton kind of Grom team just before they all hit. And, and you'd see that shit. Like Arthur Longo's sort of starting to bring that to attention now, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Like that, okay, you can do this. Mm. Riding tangible terrain at a super pro level. Yeah. I mean, his idea of a side hit is still quite, really, like you're going to transfer from the side of the mountain to that side of the mountain? Well, I guess it's a side hit. <laughs> yeah. Favourite gig? Music gig? Yeah. Uh, this one's really easy. The Chemical Brothers and the Prodigy came and played at Val Air together. Fucking hell, 1997, <laughs> anyone? <laughs> Jesus. It was unreal. We all snuck in and it got super loose. It was yeah. brilliant. Absolutely Was brilliant. that in the late 90s? Yeah. When they were, yeah, it was, so, I think it was 96. Fuck, so at their prime? Yeah. It was wow. unbelievable. And they basically wanted a free ski holiday, I imagine. Yeah. And they just came out. There was a tent set up at the back of town, and it went mental. Everyone wow. was in there. It was probably 20 times more people than they were illegally allowed in. <laughs> um, yeah, that one, I've seen... I saw the Strokes and the Pixies on one lineup together, which was unbelievable. That yeah. was amazing. Um, who else would be up there? <laughs> I saw Metallica at Monsters of Rock. That was pretty rad. Favourite city? Ooh, favourite cities. I love London. I know it really well. Cities that you love, you can find any food, any drink, and people like it's an exciting place. There's an energy there. Mm-hmm. Like I've been to New York. I've, I love Tokyo. Like New York, I've I've been around it a few times. And I really love it, but New York is not the city that never sleeps. Like mm. London, you can go as long as you want. I I really love Madrid. It's that is a wonderful city, but London, I think, for me, like you can go 
like some of the pubs you can go to there, the people you can meet. It's just, mm. it's awesome. Favourite trek? Another proper crossboned indie off a backside side hit. I used to have an all right method, but with old age, it's getting a bit stinky and mouldy. I don't <laughs> bust it out too often. I need need to get back into some yoga. I really like, I don't know if it's a trick anymore, but I really, I love frontside 360 nose bun. Yeah. I really love that. I haven't done one for ages, but corked backside five. The best trick, best feeling trick I've ever done. I did a huge cab five tail once where I just lent, slightly corked, lent onto it and held the tail. And I can still, I can put myself there in that moment, holding the tail and just gently tilting my head, ready, looking for the landing. That was epic. Nice. But yeah, if, if it's tricks I can still do regularly, it's probably a wildcat with a front side grab. <laughs> backflips, I want to be able to do a backflip when I'm 50. That's my goal. Sweet. Favourite board graphic? Oh, there's so many good ones, aren't there? I love, I think, favourite board graphic, Mickey Albin, Gons. His yeah, only pro model. Very iconic, isn't it? And the fact that Gons spelt Burton wrong on <laughs> yeah, purpose yeah, and they, yeah. Burton still used it, I respect that a lot. I love it. Um, soon after that, I think, would be that there's a lovely... Um, is it Looney Tunes that Ride used with Jason oh, Ford, Jason, yeah, Dale yeah. Rayburn, Jake Blauvelt? Yeah. yeah, there was. I loved that little one. But the Jamie Lynn Whale, I really love. I'm after one of those for the collection, eh? Yeah. It's like scarce as fucking hen's teeth. Most insane shape as well. Like, literally the kick on the nose and tail mm. went to vert in about 10 centimetres. Yeah. I'd love to ride a kick like that, eh? See what it rides like. But like <laughs> Turkish slipper. Yeah. <laughs> but like, because yeah, that's the one he rode at the end of the garden, the the last section of the garden. Yes. And so to me, that's just burned in my mind, that yeah. base graphic with cab, cab spins and shit. I'm trying to yeah. think if there's, there's so many, aren't there? And I feel yeah. like I've gone for a really obvious one. But... Yeah, there's a couple I really enjoyed. I think it was Grant Webster's series where the man's hiding inside the bear on the six sticks. But they they were all in a period when I was riding six sticks in Alaska and I got to ride some... Like, I got to spend three or four years grabbing a couple of drops off the corner of jobs like the Absinthe trip or the Xavier de la Rue or a Freeride World Tour trip. And I'd spent... I'd invested three or four years with a couple of runs and I knew some guides who trusted my ability level and I got I got to work out how to ride some spines. So those that always brings back happy memories. I've got one of those as a wall board. Right. So. Who has the best method? Jamie Lynn. <laughs> <laughs> and for a while, back in the mid-90s, I thought it was Derek Height, the old Whistler pro. He had a really squared off flat method that he grabbed between the feet. Mm. But um, no, it's that fingertip control. It's Jamie Mm. Lynn all the way. And final bonus question. 
What's the key to a good method? A method, you need to go massive. There is nothing worse than a small method. If you're going to do a method, go big. Make sure you've got plenty of time to stretch it out. Sweet. <laughs> oh, thank you so much for your time, Ian. We'll hopefully see you up the hill at some point. I look forward to it, Tony. Thank you so much for having me. Sweet. Sweet.